Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Picasad Podcast. My name is Joel Moran and I'm here with Jack Bartek and this is episode 75. In this episode, we will talk about the Brooklyn Nets with Will Hanley from Nets Daily, give our mid-season NBA awards, potential landing spots for Victor Oladipo, PJ Tucker, and LaMarcus Aldridge. Then we will talk about the Phoenix Suns, Utah Jazz, and the Dallas Mavericks. And for the football portion of this episode, we will talk about the Dallas Cowboys ceiling. Now that Dak got his huge payday, if it would be smart for the Chicago Bears to trade for Russell Wilson, and we will preview the offseason for the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. This is now episode 75. We appreciate everybody that is tuning in. Yeah, and excited for this interview. You know, I'm pumped for this one because I'm a big fan of this account, so I can't wait. You know, I'm always excited when we talk about the Nets. I've been a lifelong Nets fan. I'm a Jets, Nets, and Mets fan. (laughs) Recently adopted the Nets because they did get James Harden. James Harden is my favorite player. So I hope I didn't mess up your name in the beginning. I was hoping I didn't, but did I pronounce it right? No, yeah, you, you did it perfect. Uh, fantastic absolutely I, I appreciate you guys having me and I'm excited you know it's a great time to be a Nets fan so I'm I'm super excited yeah so if you guys don't know for you guys that are watching um, at home or you're listening to the podcast Will Hanley is the creator of a Nets account called Nets as depicted by Spongebob and everything that happens with the Nets he finds a meme or a video to fit what's happening it's a really clever account and how did it all come about yeah, so it, it's funny. It it really was something that I started um, on my personal account. I just thought it would kind of be funny to like start making a thing and see like, you know, okay, okay, how am I feeling in that moment? And then instead of just like writing it down and being like, you know, sad or angry or upset, just try to make it sort of funny and something that people would like. Uh, so on my personal account, the first season that I did it was actually with the 2018-19 team, and I used The Office. And that was, you know, mildly successful. The people who I sort of, who were following me, my friends, they sort of liked it. But it really, you know, it didn't really get too far. And then I was like, okay, I kind of want to make this a separate account just so, you know, people get the chance to look at it. And, you know, it's just sort of more something that people can view and share and stuff. And so I was like, all right, well, do I want to stick with The Office again or do I want to go a different route and I decided to go with Spongebob just because of how universally beloved it is and you know at the time we had just got Katie and Kyrie so I knew I knew it was going to be a big season no matter what was going to happen it was going to be a big season a lot of eyes were going to be on the net so it, a lot of you know it was a lot of good timing a lot of things that were out of my control but you know and it's it's really taken off I mean having the opportunity to join Nets Daily is something that I never thought I never dreamed of being possible for me you know as just really was just a part of Twitter and didn't really have that big of an account to begin with. Uh, you know, that was, was super exciting for me. I, I can't believe it's gotten to the places that it has, and I'm looking forward to the future. Yeah, and, and I know my first question is, how do you possibly do it? Like, do you have a folder of, of stuff that you have prepared? Do you pre-plan these things, or is it all just spur of the moment? Yeah, so I think it depends on what happens, right? So there's definitely games where, if we're going in and let's say we're playing, you know, the Memphis Grizzlies, I'm going to want to use like, you know, one of the clips of them getting like mauled by like the bear, right? In that one episode, just because like it fits, you know? So I'm like, all right, if we lose, like I'm going to go with that. But then there are other times, you know, like there have been games where let's say 
you know, we've blown it in the last like two minutes. And I'll have like a clip ready of us like celebrating or like, you know, a happy thing. And then I'm like, oh, I got to scramble and pick something that's like, you know, devastating because that's how I feel in this moment. Uh, I'm sure that's how everybody else is feeling. So, you know, so I started out with a folder, but to be honest with you, I just like, I lost storage on my phone. So like, you know, I'd be out and my friends like, oh, can you take a picture, do this? And I'd be like, oh, you don't have any storage. And I'd be like, oh, let me clear my camera roll. And I'm like, oh, I can. It's all SpongeBob stuff. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, you know, so, so I, to be honest with you, like I have a YouTube, like sort of like playlist that I guess you can get. So if I see a video on YouTube, I'll save it. And it's just quickly something that I can like screen record and then post. Uh, I've gotten pretty good and like pretty fast at doing that. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely something that there's definitely some planning that goes into it. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I've been, I see the tweets pop up on my Twitter account, a lot on my TL and it's always a pretty funny experience, but I can imagine that once James Harden did get traded to the traded to the nets, the account probably blew up even more than what it was already. Oh, for sure. Definitely. I mean, adding, adding Kyrie and Katie and, and Harden and even to be honest, like even Blake Griffin, believe it or not, has really, it, it gives it a little bit of a boost. I find that honestly, you know, I get the biggest boost when they play like better teams, especially like the primetime games. Like, and I hope to, you know, I'll, I'll comment every once in a while under like ESPN or TNT when they about it just so that people can sort of just like, I'm all about, um, but honestly, I mean, yeah, you know, adding Harden was huge because all of a sudden you start getting all like the notifications like at Icy Beard and at Playoff Harden and all these people who like in their bios it says like Rockets and Nets, you know. And I'm like, all right, I, I guess these are the, this is the wa- the Harden wave. But you know, yeah, it's it, it's been crazy, man. So talking about the move that the Nets recently just made, they went out and they signed Blake Griffin for the vent minimum, and Jack and I had talked about this move. We both think it's a fantastic find. We're both iffy on whether how the closing lineups are going to shape out because he's not a very good defender. But what do you think Blake is going to add to the Nets? Yeah, I mean, I to be honest with you, I think what made this deal for me was what you said, right? The vet minimum. If this was the move that maybe we used and we, you know, we paid him ten million dollars with Dinwiddie's injury exception and the trade exception, maybe I'd be having different thoughts, or at least my expect expectations for Griffin would be a lot higher but honestly if you think about it you know we were paying or we are paying what like Chioza the same amount of money so like you know worst case scenario if Griffin is just isn't cutting weight then we just cut him you know we just move on and no hard feelings and you know people are going to get hype and excited because it's a big name and obviously big Blake Griffin has had a lot of individual success in this league but you know I'm excited to see what he can bring I think it's a it's a high reward low risk signing so i'm just excited to see how it all fits is he going to be in the closing lineup i don't know you know maybe does he end up replacing jeff green down the stretch i don't know because jeff green's been very good on the defensive end and you know he he's having probably his best shooting season in his career so if blake can come and sort of rejuvenate himself then absolutely i think there's a spot for him but you know i think right now i think he's just another good quality option off the bench yeah, I agree. I'm just hoping that Blake Griffin dunks for the first time. I think it's going to come off a Harden lob. That's just my prediction. I know he's not playing today. I'm, he's not playing today. No, he's now. out tonight. So hopefully when he plays his first game as a net, I am predicting that Harden will throw him a lob and he will dunk for the first time in about like one and a half years. Yeah, I think so, man. I mean, it's crazy to even 
because the first thing when you think of Blake Griffin, you think of like high flying and all these crazy dunks that he's had. And the fact that he hasn't dunked in so long is, is sort of insane. And I think a lot of that is injuries. And I think a lot of that too is, was playing through injuries. And I think that sort of shows you just the type of guy that you're getting, the type of professional that you're getting just because of how much he really sacrificed for his body for that, what was that, that eighth seed run with Detroit where I think they ended up getting swept, but he was out there on like, you know, one and a half legs. So, you know, I'm excited. I hopefully that, that the basketball god sort of gave him some good karma with that. Uh, and we've seen Harden rejuvenate people's careers before. So, I, yeah, I'm confident we're going to see him, absolutely. Yeah, and I just wanted to go back to the Twitter account for a minute. I want to know, was there one moment where you thought, like, okay, this is something I can really gain a following with? Like, was there one viral moment where you were like, okay, this is a real thing? Yeah, I mean... I- it's funny. I think it all sort of started with Nets Daily, right? Which was something that, like, I wasn't even consi- like never in a million years where I would have reached out. I don't know how other people join Nets Daily, but I would never have reached out to Nets Daily and be like, "Let me do this for you," just because I feel like that's just two things that doesn't really like mix, you know. But the fact, but it really has been such a seamless thing, and, and they're all just a bunch of good guys over there, so I couldn't be happier. But you know, I made a post and it was one of really the, the first like viral videos that I made, but it was like a day in the life of Nets Twitter. It was that scene when they're talking about like, all right, like, how are we going to go kill this bullworm? And it's just like chaos and everybody yelling at each other. And like, I tagged, like, I think like Nets Daily and like Matt Brooks in the video. And I just made them like, people in the video. And I, I went to sleep, to be honest with you. I, I posted the video and I went to sleep. And I was expecting, you know, if I'm lucky, I'll get 30 likes on this and 10 retweets. And then I wake up the next morning and people are like, oh my God, like the funniest thing I've ever seen. And then I see, you know, Net Daily DMs you like, hey, like, I, I want you to do this for me. And I was like, like, what? Like, wow. oh my gosh, like, I, I didn't even know it was. So I'm like, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. And then, you know, this is history. And then honestly, gaining, you know, there's no really better way to put this, just like gaining that clout. You know, when you're on that. Nets Twitter, Nets Daily is like, and the guys there, they're really, you know, that's like the upper echelon of where you get your news and your stories and all like the jokes sort of like come from those guys. I feel like they're just like a machine. So the fact that I was really able to, you know, hitch my bandwagon to that is, was really what helped me a lot, I would say. Yeah. Nets Daily is the biggest, I would say, platform for the Brooklyn Nets. Like as soon as Harden got traded, because I'll be honest, I'm not a Nets fan. I am a Knicks fan, mm-hmm. but I'm a huge James Harden fan. So once he got traded to the Nets, it it gave me a, a reason to root for the Nets. So mm-hmm. the first account I followed was Nets Daily. Everything that has to do with Nets, they're always on top of everything. I'm always looking at their stuff. And they. I would say I don't see anybody else doing Nets content like them. I think they are the biggest. No, oh, yeah. I mean, they're 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 a well-oiled machine at this point, and obviously, like like you know, Net Income, who's who runs the account and who's really like the guy behind the show. Him and Tom Tom, uh, just the fact that they're able to find these guys. I mean, Pooch, you know, uh, you know, Matt Brooks, who they have now, Justin. Like the fact that like it's like it's almost crazy. Like I said, like he's like the Bob Myers of like sports writers, right? <laughs> like he just sort of just finds these guys like in a draft or whatever, and then they just become like these, these great people. I mean, we see what Pooch is doing now. So yeah, no, definitely. It's just, almost, it, it's just the whole thing's crazy. If I haven't said that enough, the whole thing's absolutely crazy because like, I think we were saying before the live stream, like I was really genuinely just doing this like for fun. 
and just something that I was like, oh, this is funny. And at the end of the day, it might end up like annoying people, you know, but the fact that it's grown to what it is and, you know, putting, dealing to put Nets Daily in my bio is, is just, it's insane. And, and since you've started this account, have you received any feedback from any of the players or anybody inside the organization? And if so, like, who have been the biggest supporters of it or, or the, the biggest guys to reach out and, you know, respond to the content? Yeah, it's funny, right? So we, I sort of have this running joke that, like, I, I try to ask every player, like, what's your favorite SpongeBob episode? And, like, nobody has responded to that question yet. <laughs> so, like, it's like a running joke that, like, I'm talking to, like, a brick wall. And, like, whenever I tweet that, people are like, oh, no, like, he's asking again. Or, like, people will post, like, the video of, like, that guy, like, talking like a brick wall. Um, so that I haven't gotten. But, I, you know, I've gotten a couple of likes. Chioza has liked stuff before, like, stuff that either – I've mentioned him in or like, you know, like a funny video or something. Dinwiddie, if I post Dinwiddie highlights, Dinwiddie will like it. <laughs> so like if it is involving anything, especially like his game winning shot of the Lakers, anytime I post that, he'll like it. If I'm like, I just want Dinwiddie to like this tweet, I'll find a way to incorporate that highlight in like the video. And, and absolutely like without a doubt, Dinwiddie's going to like it. But for that man, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, the next social team has really been, really big fans of it. I mean, Jordan, Jess, and, and a lot of other guys, they either follow me or, you know, they, they've spoken to me and they're like, oh, like, you know, this is awesome. Or like they tag me and stuff. And that part is just absolutely crazy because, you know, at, at the end of the day, that really is what I want to do for a living. You know, I would love to say, you know, in 10, five, or I mean, who knows, five, 10, 20 years down the line, I'm running a social account for some team or, you know, see somewhere. So the fact that they're noticing and, and they're, fans of what I'm doing it's just something that I'm like, all right cool so you know maybe this isn't all for not yeah well deserved because it's a really creative spin on on sports I mean you don't really see much themed accounts throughout net um NBA Twitter with any team I think this is a really um niche like it has a really good niche with Spongebob and Spongebob like you said is so global that everybody can relate to it and everybody can kind of know what you're talking about when you incorporate these clips and everybody can have a nice laugh within it. But I want to get into the Eastern Conference and how everything is shaping out right now. In my opinion, I'm not worried about any other any team in the Eastern Conference. The only one that makes me get up a little is Philadelphia. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I am I am naturally a pessimist, right? So my so my whole thing is like we're not winning the championship until like they are holding the trophy and I'm at the parade. And then I'm going to be like, Oh my God, like we actually won the champion. Um, I'll, you know, I'll be honest. Philadelphia scares me, man. That's a good team, especially because I don't, I think they're going to end up trading for a point guard. There's Lowry or, you know, but I don't know, but that's a good lineup. And we really don't, I mean, if we had Drummond, that's one thing because it's just a body on a body, but, we really don't have any answers for Embiid. And we've honestly, I don't want to say us because we haven't really been contending, but, you know, the rest of the East has really been sort of bailed out by the fact that Embiid and Simmons could stay on the court together. I mean, think about it. They probably would have been in the finals and they probably would have won if it hadn't been for some miracle Kawhi shot in game seven. <laughs> you know, they're going to the finals with Jimmy Butler. And if KD and Clay all get hurt, like, you know, who, who, who can say that they would have gotten hurt or not, but let's, say that happens like it, then we'll put Simmons, Joel, 
people and to tell them going for number two. And I think it's a very different conversation that we're having. So, you know, I think that's a team that's built to win championships, as are we, for sure. So, you know, besides Philadelphia, I think Milwaukee, when you any team with Giannis is going to be good. I really think it's just really up to Giannis to figure out sort of, you know, what to do, and especially in clutch situations. I mean, you know, I like Giannis personally, like as a, as a player and as a guy, he just seems like a cool guy. So I always root for him, but you know, there's just some times like, I think even like against us where Chris Middleton was going in for the game winner and Giannis is standing at half court. And I'm like, you know, what are you doing? You're supposed to be the best player in the league. You're the back-to-back MVP. How are you not at least, you know, trying to get a rebound? You know, I, I, I don't know. That, that to me just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I couldn't imagine what the narrative would be if, you know, Kyrie or Kevin Durant was standing at half court with his hands on his hips at the last final possession. And then even too, like he, he's defensive player of the year. And I forget exactly what the team was, but like wasn't guarding up on, I think it was like somebody who ended up hitting like a game winner over them. And I'm like, you know, what are you doing? You know, so Giannis to me, Giannis doesn't scare me. Giannis, I think, you know, could we lose to Milwaukee? Absolutely could lose to Milwaukee. But this really is like a, it's a three, it's a three headed dog Eastern Conference. It's us, Philly, and Milwaukee, Boston, Miami, all those other guys, even like Indiana. They've got other stuff to figure out first. Could they turn it around? Absolutely, they could turn it around. And at the end of the day, I think there's Boston was honestly the team that was scaring me the most because so much history. There's so much, you know, we're two teams who are so familiar with each other. You know, Marcus Smart to me is a dog. You know, he he's somebody that could absolutely just stick him on Harden, and then we're just kind of like, uh, like I don't know what to do because Harden was our entire motion offense, and now, you know, he he's he's in a locker this series. But, you know, that's if Boston even makes the playoffs now. So it's very interesting to see. But, you know, I would have to agree with you, Joel. I think I think Philadelphia, it's really, it seems like this thing is destined between, uh, going to be between us and Philadelphia. Yeah, and, and I'm wondering what you think going into the second half of the season is the most important key for the Nets to maintain the success they kind of found towards the latter half of the first half. And, you know, what do you think is the most important thing for them to become NBA champions? You know, I think it's just consistency. You know, we saw it with the Clippers. The Clippers, in my opinion, was probably the the best well-rounded, constructed roster I've seen in a long time in this league. But at the end of the day, they didn't have the chemistry or the coaching to overcome Denver. With their backs against the wall, they, they just didn't have what it takes. And, you know, I think Brooklyn's a little bit of a situation. I think we're more a more talented roster. I won't say a more well-rounded, but a more talented roster than what the Clippers had last year. And, you know, those are guys who seem to be very close and very friendly with each other. But, you know, we talk about the big three. The big three hasn't played, what, eight games together they've played? That's got to change. We need all three guys on the court. We need them winning, losing. We need them down by 15. We need them up by 15. Just so they can sort of, you know, it's just like any other sport. Like, I'm sure, you know, we've all played basketball. You play with the more you play with somebody, and if you've been playing with the same guys your entire life, you know where they're going to be on the floor. You know what their habits are. You know where to find them, and that just comes with repetition and practice. So, you know that's really what might end up being you know the separating factor in the final five minutes of a game seven in Philadelphia. You know, that's the difference between find Kyrie and trans. He's you know uh, go ahead three. It's the difference of I'm going to pass and do an errant pass, and I thought Kyrie would be there, or I wanted Kyrie there, and he's actually over there, 
and it's out of bounds and we lose. You yeah. know, that's yeah. a very specific example and which but which probably won't end up happening. But at the end of the day we just gotta see these guys out there more together, developing bonds, developing consistency. And, you know, I'll be honest too, I had my doubts about Nash as a coach, especially in the beginning. You know, I wasn't really calling for his head or anything. I thought that was a bit of an overreaction, but I had my doubts about giving a rookie head coach such high championship expectations. I mean, you know, this is someone who really hadn't coached anywhere. And it was very evident in the first, especially in his rotations in the beginning, because you were like, what's going on? And Nash has heavily improved down the stretch. So I'm interested to see how he uses Griffin and stuff. And so Nash has to continue to improve. And whether that's Deant- listening more to D'Antoni or, you know, working more collaboratively with him, I don't know what that, that dynamic's like between them. But Nash has been steadily improving month by month, and that needs to continue because, you know, like I said, in the playoffs, it could all come down to, you know, we know all these guys are going to be playing 40 minutes a night. So it's all going to come down to, you know, Katie, Kyrie, and Harden and just putting them in the best position to succeed. And, you know, a lot of that falls on Nash. Yeah, I totally agree with what you said. And I want to hit on one important point that you made. You talked about the continuity and all three of them being on the same court together in KD, Harden, and Kyrie. Right now, Kevin Durant is out. And we're not sure how serious his injury is because it's a hamstring injury. And this is the same injury he had in Golden State before he ended up tearing his Achilles. So I can, I'm almost pretty certain that the Nets want to be extremely cautious with this injury. But how worried are you about Kevin Durant's health? Do you think it's just something he has to keep resting up or does it, does it concern you? I, I, I mean, I'd be lying if I said it didn't concern me. You know, I think people look at it and they're like, oh, this, it's the other leg, right? So it's not the Achilles, it's not the Achilles, Achilles injury that you already dealt with. But I feel like, you know, and I'm not a doctor, you know, I'm not, I didn't even do well in biology. So, you know, I, I may not be know what I'm talking about, but I just feel like if you're rehabbing one leg, you're going to be so dominant on that one leg. So I just feel like you're all like out of whack. You know, it's almost like, like when a dog, when they're ACL, and then they're like, most dogs, when they tear one ACL, they're going to end up tearing the other ACL just because they're too reliant on that leg and it's going to overstrain it. So I don't know if like something similar is happening with KD or what, but you know, listen, if, if KD wants to, you know, KD wants to sit out until, you know, May, just, just so he's healthy and ready to go. Like, I, I don't care. You know, it, it's all about the playoffs. I would love to see him. And I know that goes against everything that I just said, you know, that I would like to see him develop consistency, but health is number one. And, you know, I, I trust KD enough that he's going to be able to go out there and do what needs to be done. It's really more, you know, everybody else around him that I'm concerned about. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I trust the Nets staff. You know, I, I think they've, they've proven that over the years just to trust them with everything that they've done. So if they say Katie needs to sit out a little bit more, that's fine. Uh, I just hope, you know, I don't know. I just hope that he's in it for the long run because I, I anticipate this being the longest, you know what I mean, out of all the teams, I anticipate, I anticipate us playing the most games. <laughs> I, I hope so. And, you know, the one thing I wanted to ask is you found so much success with this SpongeBob account and you're doing such a great job with it. And I just wonder what's next for you. Where do you plan to take this? Do you have anything lined up or, you know, where do you see this leading for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, honestly, the, the goal, the dream is to 
you know, be doing, making social and digital content either for, you know, a team or, you know, uh, some company somewhere, you know, so this is really just something that, you know, it's like a, it's a resume builder, you know, it's just something like my whole thing. I can put on my resume do or, or I'm able of but with this this is the this is the community that I built this is the feedback that I get and you know this is and this is just me on my own using you know 99 cent apps on my iPhone you know imagine if I if I had the resources of your company or your team or you know your organization or whatever so you know that that's really where I'm at it's just sort of okay hopefully can I turn this into a full-time opportunity with some organization you know that on it unfortunately has yet to be seen, but I'm hoping that I'm hoping that that's the next step for me. Yeah, and it was great to have you on here. You're welcome back anytime. We wish nothing but success for you in your Twitter account because it truly is a great account. We're going to be following the Nets all year, and you're welcome to come back anytime. Well, I appreciate you guys. Thank you guys for having me, and absolutely, I've had a blast. I'm happy to come on whenever you'll want. You'll have me. All right. Thank you. Well, we'll see you next time. Yep. Absolutely. Take care. You too. So that was Will Hanley from Nets Daily. He has a great Twitter account called Nets as depicted by SpongeBob about 4,000 followers, 4,000 plus followers on Twitter. I know Jack has been knowing about that account for a (laughs) while because he's a Nets fan. So of course he knows about it, but yeah, that was Will Hanley. If, uh, you guys are interested in the Nets and want to know more about the Nets and want a, an account that is funny to follow, follow him at Nets um, at Nets depicted by SpongeBob, I believe it is. Yeah, and, and it's funny because, you know, I've been following that account probably since the beginning. And one, I've come to love that account so much because it's so hilarious. It's so on point, And I feel like it, it, it always has the perfect like, I don't know how he does it. He always has the perfect moment for the situation with the Nets. It's He does such a great job with it. And now to get him on here and have him actually talking about the Nets and seeing it's not just a meme, like he knows what he's talking about. He's obviously a big fan of the team. It's cool to, you know, get to have that conversation with him. And it definitely gives me a deeper appreciation now for what he's doing. And, you know, hopefully a lot more positive SpongeBob memes to come in the future. Yeah, it was a great conversation, and he's somebody that could come on the show anytime he wants. We could talk about the Nets. The Nets are going to be a trending topic all year long because they have Harden, Katie, and Kyrie. But now we're going to move on to the next part of the show. Riv is not here today because he had an emergency to take care of, so it's just Jack and I. And this is going to be a, a fun segment. We were thinking about doing something different, something a little bit fun, We didn't get quite to it, but I'm pretty sure that soon we are going to get to it. It's NBA Midseason Awards. So for this segment, we're going to predict the MVP or we're going to give out our award so far for the MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, Rookie of the Year, Sixth Man of the Year, Most Improved Player, and Coach of the Year. Before we we wrote down this segment as a potential topic, I had an idea of giving out some other different type of awards. Maybe Clutch's player. Um, 
best hairline. I don't know. <laughs> just it was whatever most the, exciting player. Yes, whatever came out of my head, whatever. But we're not going to do that this segment. We're going to probably do it later on. Uh, but okay, right now, who is your MVP? NBA midseason awards. Who do you have as MVP? Yeah, so for my MVP, it, it kind of is a two-man race, but I think this one is a pretty obvious one. It's the man up on the screen, Joel Embiid. He's taken a Sixers team that I thought had a lot of potential this year, but I did definitely did not see them as a one seed in the Eastern Conference, especially with how well the Nets have played. Although, you know, they've had their struggles for everything the Sixers have gone through. They, they've faced some COVID struggles. You know, they've had injuries. For them to be where they're at, it's a testament to how good Joel Embiid's playing. He's really put the team on his back in the first half, and I think without him, they are, you know, I don't even know if they're a playoff team. If so, they're a fringe playoff team. So he has really elevated that team a lot. I think they are still a playoff team without Embiid, but I get what you Maybe are saying. Maybe in the East. Yeah, yeah, in they the are, East, definitely. Probably, yeah, but. What I'll say is this. I think since it is midseason NBA awards and we're not projecting you have to take everything into account. So you have to take stats, winning, all of that. If we are just taking stats, I'm going to Kola Jokic as my MVP. But because everything counts, including winning, and the 76ers are the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, as of now, Joel Embiid has to be my MVP so far because he's playing at a phenomenal level. He's averaging 30 points per game, and his efficiency is off the, chart, off the charts. He's shooting insanely well from three. So Joel Embiid is definitely MVP so far. Now the next award, Defensive Player of the Year. Who do you have? This one was a little bit tougher. Um, I think this is one of the more open ones out of any of them. I'm going to give it to Rudy Gobert. I think he's been such an integral part of what that Utah Jazz team has been able to do. Obviously the best team in the NBA. And one of the biggest reasons is that defense and he's played such a huge part in that. You know, he's got the pedigree. We know the the type of defender, the caliber of defender he is. And he's been the backbone of that defense. So that's why I'm giving him the nod for Defensive Player of the Year. I have to agree with you. I think the Utah Jazz have been so great for the past couple of years because Rudy Gobert is probably the best defensive center in the entire NBA. You look at the Utah Jazz this year. They're so good defensively because Rudy Gobert protects the paint so well. I mean, people love to make fun of Gobert and love to call him overpaid, but he makes a huge impact for the Utah Jazz, and without Gobert, they wouldn't be where they are right now. So Rudy Gobert, definitely I could see. Right now, I would have him as Defensive Player of the Year. Another player could be Ben Simmons possibly because he's been playing awesome. It's kind of weird because – you know, this is a, just a, a sneak peek at our other pick, but I, I think that everybody, every fan at least should have Jordan Clarkson as sixth man of the year. But if you have Jordan Clarkson and, and, and Gobert as sixth man and DPOY, you have two players from the same team winning two awards. And Philly, if you have Embiid as MVP and Simmons as DPOY, the same thing yeah. can be said. So it is pretty insane that, both players from two separate teams are playing at a great level, at a really high level right now. So, yes, my DPOY is Rudy Gobert. Next, Rookie of the Year. This one was a no-brainer for me, at least to this point in the season. And obviously, things can change, but it's got to be LaMelo Ball, especially since he stepped up into that starting role. All of his numbers have increased, and I feel like, to me, more importantly, you've seen him mature and very quickly. He's not afraid of the big moment. He's not afraid of the big shot. 
He's poised under pressure. You know, it, it doesn't seem like anything phases him. It doesn't seem like anything gets to him. So it really does feel like you're watching a budding superstar right now. And I'm excited to see what the future holds down in Charlotte. I agree. It's LaMelo Ball. Throughout the season, it looked like Tyrese Halliburton was going to give him a run for his money. But LaMelo, since he started, has created such a separation between him and everybody else. It, like When you look at this draft class, at least so far, LaMelo Ball is that guy you look at and you're like, yeah, that's a star. That's a superstar. Everybody else are, are like really good player, but I don't know about star. So I think LaMelo Ball is definitely the runaway rookie of the year. And I don't know if I'm crazy for this, but I was watching LaMelo the other day, just watching his game, the way he plays, how great his rookie year has been. He reminds me a lot of Tyreek Evans. In his rookie year. Hey, he, was and I, all, he had an yeah. awesome rookie and, year. And I know people, when they compare LaMelo Ball, they love to throw out Jason Kidd and other great passes that have played in the game. But Tyreek Evans was a problem in his rookie year. And, and Tyreek Evans was great. Yeah, he's size-wise much more closer to a Tyreek Evans than a Jason Kidd. Um, and you mentioned about the draft class. I would say it's like LaMelo Ball, a pretty decent gap, and then Tyrese Halliburton. I'd say there's another gap after that. Probably not as big. And then everybody else. Like, those two guys have been head and shoulders above the rest of the league. Uh, Any other year, Halliburton is probably the favorite right now, but LaMelo has played, not even by rookie standards, he's just been a great player this season. So, got to give him the nod. Yeah, no doubt about it. Next award, sixth man of the year. I gave a little sneak peek earlier, but look, (laughs) Jordan Clarkson is sixth man of the year to me. Like, no-brainer. It's another no question about it. One of the other, we mentioned when we were talking Rudy Gobert, the defense has been such a key on why they've been playing so well. One of the other biggest keys is the bench, and that was something that they kind of lacked last year was firepower coming off the bench, mm-hmm. and Jordan Clarkson has stepped up and become, you know, he's given you starter output off the bench, so he has been an incredible boost for them, and I don't know if they're at where they're at right now without him. It seems like in every era, or at least every other five years, we have a player that emerges and becomes one of the best six men in the NBA. Just, I think, 10 years ago, that guy was Jamal Crawford on the Atlanta Hawks. Then a couple years ago, it was Lou Williams with the Clippers and with the Raptors. And everywhere Lou Will has been, he's been a terrific six man. And now it seems like that is Jordan Clarkson. I think he is this era's Jamal Crawford, especially when you look at what he can do, how, how, how quickly he can put the ball in a basket Per 36 minutes, like per 36 minutes, he's averaging the same amount of points as Donovan Mitchell. So he is really lighting it up, and he's by far the sixth man of the year, sixth man of the year so far this season. Now, most improved player, who do you have? This one to me was another easy one. Um, I don't know if you're going the same way, but it's got to be Julius Randle to me. And it's a guy who I thought when the Knicks signed him, I thought it was a really good signing. And I kind of expected this type of production. He had a down year, and I feel like everybody kind of soured to him, and I'm just as guilty, and he really turned it around. And this is the type of guy that I expected the Knicks to be getting from New Orleans. Honestly, he's over-exceeded my expectations for him, and he has really helped ignite the charge for the Knicks. He seems like he is that key piece that the Knicks have been missing in turning things around from, you know, they've been in this tank situation and hope that they can get a free agent. Now... They're starting to win. They're starting to establish a bit of a culture. Thibodeau's done a great job, but Julius Randle has really helped put them in the win column, and I think that will be the big difference in them turning things around. But 
The main point is Julius Randle. He's been so incredible scoring the ball, rebounding, passing. He's been a lot better defensively. So I, I feel like in every aspect of his game, he's improved. So to me, he, he is the perfect example of a most improved player. I'm not mad at that because Julius Randle definitely deserves some consideration. But I'm going with two players that are not Julius Randle. I think I know who you're going to say. Christian Wood mm-hmm. and Jeremy Grant. It's one of those guys. I mean, I think that's the easy pick. Christian Wood will probably not get it because he has not been playing. He's probably going to miss the majority of the year, so he's not going to win it. But Jeremy Grant upping his scoring average from, from like I think, 11 points, 11 points more, I think that's phenomenal, even though the Pistons are not good at all. He has, I think, the best case to win most improved player because most improved player has never been an award based off of your production plus winning. It's always been, okay, who's averaging the most points from the previous season? And this year, it's been Jeremy Grant. But Julius Randle has a case to do it because the Knicks are winning. They're in the playoffs. Randle not only is a, a great scorer this season, but he's a great rebounder, a great facilitator, and in much improved defender. So he's literally doing everything for the Knicks, and they're in the playoffs, which I think means a lot. So there is a chance that Julius Randle could be most improved player, but my guy to this point is Jeremy Grant. Now for the final award, Coach of the Year. Who is your Coach of the Year? My coach in the year, I'm going to go with Quinn Snyder. I feel like you got to give a nod to the best team in the league. And not only are they the best team in the league, it's not like they're the Lakers or the Nets who we kind of expected to be there. You know, I was I was pretty down on the Jazz in our preseason previews. And even for people that were high on the Jazz, I don't think anybody expected them to be playing this well. So I think it's a big credit to Quinn Snyder and what he's been able to do, whether it's you know the, the rotations that I think have been spectacular getting them all to buy in on the defensive end. The defense has been one of the best in the league. The three-point shooting has improved, and, and the offense is working so well. And I feel like he deserves a lot of credit for that, so I, I think he's a, an easy choice for me. I have the same guy. The other guy I was thinking about was Tom Thibodeau because the Knicks were not I – mean, everybody thought the Knicks were going to be the worst team in the NBA, as, as did I. Yeah. And Tom Thibodeau has led this team to be a playoff team this season, but – you can't deny what Quinn Snyder is doing. They're the best team in the NBA right now, record-wise. They are playing the best basketball out of any team in the NBA. And this is a roster. This is a team who had a similar roster to last year. They added Derek Favors, which was a huge signing. But outside of that, everybody has been, everybody was there last year. So I think to this point, Quinn Snyder is definitely the coach of the year. But other than that, maybe Doc Rivers could be in the running or... Maybe well, I, I would. My second person would have been Monty Williams with the Suns. I think he's done Ooh. a really good job. Yeah, that is. They, good they got off to a slow start, but they've turned it around in that second half of the first half. And you know, I'm interested to see how they can carry it over into the second half of the season. But I'm impressed with the job he's done. You know, they, they faced some obstacles, so I think he's done a good job. Yeah, there are a lot of coaches that deserve this because Monty Williams, second seed in the West, definitely deserves it. Yeah. Quinn Snyder, Tom Thibodeau, Doc Rivers. They're all doing fantastic, but those are our mid-season NBA awards. Comment down on the comment section below who are your mid-season award winners for MVP, DPOI, Rookie of the Year, Sixth Man of the Year, Most Improved Player, or Coach of the Year. And if you don't want to comment all of those, you can just pick one, (laughs) possibly the MVP because that's the most popular award, and you can give your take. Um, But now we're going to move on to the next segment. But before we move on, 
I'm going to address something real quick because Apex Prowler donated $5 on the live stream. He says, salute guys, keep up the good work. And I just want to say thank you for donating. It really means a lot. $5 is a ton of money to donate. That is a, uh, that is a Peacock subscription for a month. So that is a lot of money. So thank you. Thank you for donating five dollars. We we really appreciate that. It means a lot to us. Yeah, seriously. Thank you. We appreciate that. But the next segment we are going to get into is we're going to talk about Giannis. You know, this season Giannis has been playing phenomenal. He we know he's a two time MVP. He has won the award back to back. But is Giannis getting unfairly casted out of the MVP race? Because even though he is playing great this season, nobody is talking about him being the MVP this season. Yeah, it's pretty crazy because he's putting up fairly similar numbers to what he was doing last year, and everybody had him as the favorite for the MVP the whole season. So, you know, it's funny. Now, obviously, Embiid's having a great year. Jokic's having a great year. But Giannis isn't even in the discussion. So it's definitely crazy to me. I think he's been hit with a little case of, you know, voter fatigue, but amongst the fans, I equate it to what happened to Lamar Jackson in the NFL. He wins his MVP. Everybody, is, you know, is in love with him. And then he goes, underperforms in the playoffs. And, you know, you know how fans react to that. When guys underperform in the playoffs, they definitely view that player through a different lens. And I feel like that's what's happening to Giannis. If he, you know, had won a championship last year, I think it would be a totally different story right now. But you're kind of seeing what happens to Lamar Jackson, in my opinion, where everybody's saying, oh, well, he doesn't have a jump shot, this and that. It's the same thing that happened last year. You know, one more year underperforming in the playoffs, I feel like has really changed fans' opinions on him, which, in my opinion, I think is a little ridiculous to judge his regular season play on last season's failures in the playoffs. But I understand from a, a mental aspect why people are, are feeling that way. This year, he's playing 34 minutes per game, which is more than the last two seasons, and it might be the, the most for his entire career. He's averaging 29 about 12 rebounds and six assists and a steal and block, shooting great from the field at about 56%. His three-point shot is still bad. It's 28.5%, and he's shooting 66% from the free throw line. But these are his stats in comparison to other players in the NBA. He's fifth in points per game. He's fourth in rebounds per game. He's third in PER, and he's second in estimated wins added. He's a two-time MVP even though I think in 2019 he should have never won. It should have been James Harden because he had an historic 2019 season. But nonetheless, I think that what's happening to Giannis is what's happening to players that, that win the MVP. Voter fatigue definitely kicks in, but it's also, for some reason in, in the NBA, we don't like to see players win awards multiple, on multiple occasions. If that was, a, I mean, if it was, if that wasn't the case, LeBron should be sitting on a couple more MVPs. Kobe would have had more MVPs. He didn't even he only had one. He would have had more MVPs. Harden would be a four-time MVP right now. You know, cuz Harden has been in that conversation damn near every single year. The MVP award is narrative driven in the NBA. I mean, to the point where it seems like we shouldn't even vote based off of regular season production because People are always going to complain regardless if that player does not win a championship. I don't know if I'm right or wrong in this, but I'm pretty sure that no player in the same year 
has won the MVP and won a championship or won a finals MVP. I might be wrong in that, but it's something along those lines. It might be MVP and DPOI in the same year and a finals. I think it might be that. Yeah, It might be yeah. that, but, you know, there's a correlation between players that win the MVP and not winning the championship. We look at the old-timers, Charles Barkley, when he won the MVP, they lost to Jordan. Carl Malone, when he won the MVP, they lost to Jordan. So there is a correlation of players winning the award and not winning a championship. So I don't think when voting for this award, we should be so hell-bent on playoff production because this is a regular season award. If it was anything else, and maybe the NBA should change it because if they see a trend in fans not wanting it to be a regular season award, maybe it shouldn't. Maybe we should vote on it at the end of the year and see, okay, who had the best regular season combined with the playoffs? That's the MVP. Yeah, and I think one thing you can see over the past couple of years, you know, I'll just say in the past decade, a lot of the guys who won the award are kind of like the heroes in the story of the NBA. I feel like the the villains of the story are LeBron, Steph Curry, the guys who have kind of dominated the league over the past decade. And then you look at guys like James Harden the year that he won it, Russell Westbrook, Giannis, Kevin Durant when he won it. All these guys are guys that you look at during the regular season. Derrick Rose is a perfect example. They're the guys that you look at and you say, oh, they can take down you know, the big bad wolf, whether it's LeBron or Steph Curry and the Warriors. And people love, like you said, that narrative. So once that gets going, uh, on top of a guy who is having a great season, you know, I feel like it's happening with Joel Embiid this year. He's having a great year combined with a Sixers team that's exceeding expectations. It's the perfect storm for the MVP votes. You know, whereas there's been years where I don't think the most valuable player by the the letter of the word has won it. I think it does have a lot to do with the way fans perceive certain players and what they're doing that season. Yeah, and whenever, have you noticed that whenever a player is leading the MVP race, that there's always a documentary made about them? (laughs) I 2019, when Harden was having a better year than Giannis, I know the advanced analytics may say otherwise, but Harden that year in 2019 with the Rockets, Chris Paul was out, Capella was out, and Harden was dropping 50 points per game and having players like Kenneth Farid average 15 and 10 who came out of nowhere. He's not even in the league right now. Harden was carrying the Rockets and keeping them above water in the Western Conference. But guess what happened that year? The NBA, ESPN, released a documentary called Finding Giannis. And the, and the documentary was about how was about Giannis's upbringing, how he had a struggle so hard, which I'm not I'm, I'm not trying to say he didn't because he definitely did, but whenever a player is a front runner for the MVP, the media loves to create the sob story around them to for people to have a soft spot for that player. And because the MVP and these awards are voted on by the media members, it always lends there's always a, a big chance for bias. Because, I mean, I think just last year, there was somebody that didn't vote Anthony Davis into, like, first-team All-NBA or something along those lines. So, in the media, there's always these extreme biases. In my opinion, I think coaches and players should be the ones to vote on these awards and fans to an extent. I, You know, I like the idea of the media members, but I think they are way too biased when it comes to this. Coaches and players, I mean, Lou Will was on Gilbert Arena's podcast in 2019 and said that 
every player thought James Harden was going to win the MVP. Every player thought that James Harden was robbed. Like, if you were to ask the players, they thought it was Harden's award and not Giannis's. But, of course, Giannis won by a landslide. Like, it wasn't even close, which, in my opinion, is ridiculous. Yeah, it, and again, it, it all comes down to that narrative because, realistically, if it was the most valuable player award, LeBron would have won it from 2007 to really, like, 2015. If you look at value and what he brought to the table with those teams, and, you know, you could look at guys like Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Kobe Bryant, how many years they should have won it, but... It's that voter fatigue and not wanting the same guy to keep winning the award over and over again. It's kind of lost the real value or the real meaning of most valuable player. Yeah, I totally agree. But with that being said, it seems like I went on a tangent about how Giannis didn't deserve one one year. But with that being said, this year Giannis should be in the conversation at least. I think he should be like, and I think people should be talking about it more and when his name does come up in the discussion, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be casted aside just because he hasn't had that playoff success. But with that being said, I'm going to tell you now, don't be surprised if a Joel Embiid documentary comes out this year. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it's going to come out later on this season. It's going to come out towards the end. It's going to be called, where's Joel Embiid from? Because he, I don't, I don't know what country he's from, but. I know he wasn't born yeah. in America. So search that. that up real quick. I'm telling you, there's going to be a Joel Embiid documentary. Jack is searching up the uh, the name. Real Cameroon. Quick. Cameroon. Okay. The documentary will be called Kid from Cameroon. Something <laughs> along those lines. It's got a ring to it. Yes. Kid from Cam- Cameroon. It's going to be something along those lines. And it's going to be about how Joel Embiid was a late bloomer and went to Kansas. And now has emerged, going to show him crying when Kawhi hit the game with a shot and how he bounced back from that moment. All great moments, but it's going to add on to the Joel Embiid is MVP narrative that already is swirling around. Somebody get ESPN on the phone. I'm telling you. got the director sitting right here. I'm telling you, that's what's going to happen. Right now in the NBA, there are a bunch of players that are on the open market, but the Rockets, it's been reported that the Rockets are prepared to have a fire sale for their players. And the two guys that come up that come in my, that, you know, pop up in our minds are Victor Oladipo and PJ Tucker, because every contending team needs a player like Tucker and teams that are trying to make that playoff push and get further want a player like Oladipo. So where do you think they can potentially land? We'll start with Victor Oladipo. Starting with Oladipo, I think the most obvious destination for him would be Miami. You know, I think they're still looking for that consistent wing. I don't think Tyler Hero has continued the way he thought he would from the bubble last year. And I think a lot of factors go into that. But if they want to look at making a, champ- a championship run or even a semi-championship run this year, I think they can use a more dependable wing. Victor Oladipo gives you that, not only scoring the basketball, but defensively, I think he would be a good fit into their system, and I don't think it would take too much. You know, I think you could get it done with some package of, like, Andre Guadala, one of those young guys, I would say, if you could, Kendrick Nunn, uh, probably one other player and a pick or two. Um, and I don't think that's too much of an asking price for a guy that has said he wants to be in Miami, 
would more than likely re-sign long-term and could help you this year in a playoff push. I have a couple teams for Oladipo. You mentioned one, Miami. I have the Knicks as one, the Dallas Mavericks, the Warriors, the Nuggets. And I was doing some researching. I was on a trade machine. The cap does not work for the Warriors or Nuggets. So that cannot work. It's going to be really hard, difficult for that to work. These are some potential trade packages I have for Oladipo. We have to keep in mind, he has a $21 million cap hit. This year, he's averaging 20 points per game, five rebounds, four assists, and if his efficiency is okay, but nothing outstanding. For the Knicks, I think the most likely package is Victor Oladipo to the Knicks for Kevin Knox and Frank Nilakina and a future pick, maybe a first, maybe a second, whatever it can be. For the Heat, the only the only the the contracts that can work are Kelly Olenek, Mo Harkless, and Kendrick Nunn for Oladipo. Do I think they want to give up Olenek and Nunn? I'm not sure. The Rockets, I think right now they want some young players and picks. Yeah. Do I think that they want a guy like Olenek or Mo Harkless who are going to leave next year? The only guy that's really going to be there to stay is Kendrick Nunn. That's the only one. And for the Mavericks, maybe Josh Green or Tyrell Terry and James Johnson for Oladipo. James Johnson makes it work because he has a $16 million cap hit. But if I'm the Rockets, do I want James Johnson back? I'm probably just going to buy him out. Josh Green and Tyrell Terry sound nice. But at this point, I think the best trade package, I may be sounding like a homer, but I think it's Kevin Knox and Frank Nilagina. The, the Rockets don't have much young players. We talked about it last episode. They have a few. And there were some Rockets fans in the comments that were pretty upset with the young core because I didn't mention David Nwaba <laughs> and Sterling Brown. Like, if you're counting those players towards the Rockets' young core, that's a horrible young core. Yeah, and, and Knox and Nittlekina, as much as they've had struggles earlier in their career— they would go to Houston, get a chance to play, which they mm-hmm. really haven't had that consistent chance in New York. And on top of that, what do you really have to lose? Oladipo's leaving after the season anyway, or at least he has held pretty firm in the stance that he's going to leave Houston after the season. So you might as well go out, get two young guys with potential. I don't think that Kendrick Nunn has you know, world's better potential than either one of those guys. So putting them together in a package, I think makes more sense. You get the the quantity over maybe the quality of one young guy. And then hopefully you could get some picks in that deal and and hope the Knicks don't figure it out, which probably isn't a good bet right now because they're trending up, but you never know. So I think that would be a solid move for the Rockets. It it really depends on how far the Knicks want to go with this, because do they really want to get Oladipo who may be a rental for a playoff push where you're going to get eliminated in the first round, most likely because when you look at the Knicks roster, you know, they're good. They're not they're nothing fantastic, but when you bring Oladipo, I think it does make them a lock to make the playoffs. But are the Knicks willing to move off from Dallas's first round pick to get Oladipo no, and make that and make that playoff so. push? And that's the thing, and I think if you're getting Oladipo, that means that you're probably thinking of signing him long term. Do you want your core moving forward to be Oladipo and Julius Randle and RJ Barrett? Yeah, I think it sounds pretty good, but I think there's a ceiling to that core. Yeah. But, you know, the starting lineup potentially could be Derrick Rose, Oladipo, Barrett, Randall, 
and Nerlens Noel or Mitchell Robinson, I think that's a pretty damn good lineup, at least for this season, if they can do it. Yeah, no question. It would be a solid lineup, but I, I would hit on what you said. You know, that lineup has a ceiling. I would say the best you would ever get out of that lineup would be like the, those early 2010s Hawks teams, you know, something like that, or those Raptors or Pacers teams where, you know, they were really good teams, but when they ran into the superstars, they always had trouble getting past them. And granted, that's a nice ceiling to have. Anytime you could make a run to, you know, an Eastern Conference Finals is a great season, but, you know, I don't know if that's something that you want to invest in, especially when you are the Knicks. And when you're winning, you know, as much as people like to joke about it, when the Knicks are winning, they're a destination. It's it's the Lakers, the Celtics, and I would say the Knicks are probably the third most famous franchise in all of basketball. So when the wins start piling up, guys will want to go there. And I don't know if it makes as much sense to mortgage a couple of your future pieces, assets for a guy like Victor Oladipo, who I think has a ceiling at this point in his career coming off the injuries. So the next player is P.J. Tucker. The Rockets are going to look to trade him. Some teams I have that could be interested are the Denver Nuggets, the Heat, the Lakers, the Nets, the Bucks, the Jazz, and the Sixers. A bunch of contending teams, but his cap hit is $7 million dollars this year he's only averaging four points per game only about five rebounds a little under five rebounds and he's playing 30 minutes a game and averaging a stat line that I could probably average if I played that much minutes a game so and the best part about Tucker right now we know it's his defense and his and his ability to hustle but it's also his three-point shot and he is shooting 31 percent from three this season so one of his greater attributes is not so great this season. So how much is a team willing to really trade for P.J. Tucker? Maybe they can get a second-round pick, but I think Tucker has kind of played played himself out of being valuable in a trade. Yeah, and I, I know I wanted the Nets to be in on him earlier this season. I think getting Blake Griffin kind of makes it a little bit more unrealistic just because he kind of brings you that spark off the bench that I think P.J. Tucker could have potentially brought you and I think P.J. Tucker would have been a better defensive option, but now that they have Blake Griffin, I think the only way you see that happen is maybe if Tucker gets bought out, and even then, who knows. The team that I was looking at was the Lakers. I know they're unhappy with the way things have gone down with Marcus Gasol. They were expecting more out of him, and although I don't think P.J. Tucker is a five, you know, you bring him in, you can slide him at the four and play A.D. at the five. I think that would be a solid... Uh, you know, player to eat up the minutes that you were expecting to get out of Gasol or at least lighten the load from Marc Gasol and, and not have him playing as much as he's playing per night. So although I think his best days are behind him, I do think getting on a playoff team, a championship-level team, would rejuvenate him at least a little bit, like we were talking about with Blake Griffin. I think the most likely scenario for P.J. Tucker is that he gets bought out because there are only a few teams that can actually trade for him and match contracts some of those teams are the Heat. They could trade Mo Harkless and KZ Okpala for P.J. Tucker and possibly a pick. Uh, the 76ers can trade Terrence Ferguson and Tony Bradley for Tucker. I think that makes the most sense. Terrence Ferguson is still a young player, even though I don't think his ceiling is that high. He's still a young player, and Tony Bradley is a rim protector, and I think that's what the Rockets need off the bench. And the Bucks. DJ Wilson and Pat Connaughton for PJ Tucker. I mean, that's another possibility, but if you're the Bucks, do you want to move off from DJ Wilson for PJ Tucker? It really it, it makes it tricky. That's why for me I think that 
the most likely scenario is that P.J. Tucker is going to get bought out because I don't think teams are looking at Tucker and saying, okay, we're going to trade a young player and potentially a pick for a player that's averaging four points per game and shooting 31% from three and that's playing 30 minutes per game. I just don't see any team realistically looking at that scenario and saying, we're going to give you something of value for Tucker. Yeah, I agree with you. I think if the Rockets were going to trade him, they should have looked into doing it at the start of the season because he's really only hurt his value over the course of this year. Yeah, no doubt about it. So we'll see what the Houston Rockets do, but reports have been that they are expected to have a fire sell of trading their players. So we'll see who gets traded and who doesn't. One thing's for certain, I think Oladipo will get traded in this trade deadline. No doubt about it. I would agree with that. There's no reason to keep him around if he said he's going to leave. Yep. Next player we'll talk about is LaMarcus Aldridge. Reports came out yesterday that the San Antonio Spurs and LaMarcus Aldridge had mutually agreed to find a trade partner, and now it means every team is trying to get LaMarcus Aldridge. Well, not every team, but a lot of the teams are, especially the contending ones, and what do you think is the best fit for Aldridge? This year he's averaging 13.7 points per game, four and a half rebounds, shooting 46% from the field and 36% from three. But last year he averaged 19 and shot 38% from three. He is not a modern big. He's a mid-range player. So I don't know where he really fits. He's, he's never been a great defender, but he's still a valuable player, I think, and can help a lot of teams. But where do you see him going? Uh, maybe I'm I'm going a little storybook here, but this just feels like the perfect move for me. Bring him back home to the Portland Trailblazers. I know Damian Lillard has been a huge advocate of getting him back to Portland over the past couple seasons since he left. And Portland is, I, I feel like, still looking for that one extra spark to put them in that conversation with, you know, maybe the Jazz. I don't know if they can get there, and I don't know if LaMarcus Aldridge is the piece to do it. But any spark that they can get would help. I think LaMarcus Aldridge, the way he's been playing in San Antonio, on top of the role that he would take in Portland. You know, he wouldn't have to be the number two guy there. He could be a number four or five option for them coming off the bench. So I feel like he could provide them a nice boost offensively. He knows the system. He knows the place. It would be a a seamless transition. And, And the guys want him back there. So even if it's for nothing but the veteran leadership, you know, I think he would be a nice addition for them. As much as I would like the Portland reunion, they can't trade for him. Yeah. It's going to be extremely tough to trade for him. Because his money is. The contracts do not match at all. Because of that, I don't think he goes back to Portland unless he gets bought out. But before I give my take, I love the Marcus Aldridge in Portland. I I love, when I played 2K, I love playing with Batum, Brandon Roy, Aldridge, Andre Miller. Those are my guys. I love Portland. But if Brandon Roy had stayed healthy, we might be having a totally different conversation. Yeah, no doubt about it. LaMarcus Aldridge, where he ends up, for me, this just screams Boston Celtics. I don't think any other team can make a move like Boston right now. Aldridge has a huge contract. We know that. But the Celtics have a huge trade exception. And they have some young players who have been underwhelming so far that they can use as potential trade bait. Look at guys like Romeo Langford, who hasn't played much for the Celtics, if at all. Carson Edwards, maybe they could trade them and some picks. Semi Ojale, 
Maybe they could trade Semi Ojale. Even though I like Semi Ojale, he could be a part of the trade. Would they be willing to move off from Aaron Neesmith to get LaMarcus Aldridge? He's been disappointing so far, but we aren't sure because he's still a young player. He has he still has room to grow. But I just think LaMarcus Aldridge to the Celtics, it just makes perfect sense. The Magic have came out and said that, listen, we're not going to trade Vucevic. They have pretty, they've pretty much said that they are planning to keep Nikola Vucevic, which is a player that the Celtics were targeting. LaMarcus Aldridge is very similar to Vucevic. He can rebound. He can score. And when you look at Boston, they don't have a true center. They are a very small team. Even though Aldridge isn't a great defender, he adds some size. He's 6'11". He, he's 6'11", but closer to 7 foot. So he's a true big man. And that's exactly what the Boston Celtics are missing. You look at the other teams in the running. Maybe Miami Heat, but it's going to take a lot for them to match contracts. But So for me, I think there are only two reasonable trade destinations, and that's Boston and Miami. Every other destination has to happen via buyout. If, I, if the Boston Celtics don't jump on this opportunity, I think they are fools for it because it seems like every year we're waiting on Boston to make a splash move, make that one move that is going to make the roster at least better. They're not going to trade for John Collins, at least I don't think so. They're not going to trade for Vucevic. Who's the next best player? It's LaMarcus Aldridge. It, this just screams Boston Celtics to me. And I would be shocked if he's not in a Celtics uniform in a, in a month or so. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because I think Vucevic would have been the perfect fit for them. Um, you know, filling that needed center, bringing that punch of offense. He's a solid defender. He's a playmaker at the five position. I really feel like he would have been the perfect guy to fit that hole. And if they had gotten Vooch, I, I would have had them right up near the top of the Eastern Conference. Maybe not at the same level as those top three teams, but I, I definitely could have seen them pulling off an upset if they had gone out and gotten a player like him. But regardless, if that's off the table, they got to find a way to fill that hole that they have down low. You know, I don't think that Tristan Thompson or Daniel Tice is cutting it down there for them. Although I don't know LaMarcus Aldridge is the best option, I do think he could be a solid option to come in, give them another scoring option outside of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and bring in some veteran leadership to that locker room that seems to be lacking some of that. I know they've had some issues this season with, you know, in the, in the post game with, you know, so some anger in the locker room. Maybe Marcus Aldridge can bring, come in and bring a cool veteran mind to that locker room. So I don't think it would be a bad move at all. And you mentioned it. Every year I feel like they're in on big-time names, whether it's on the trade market, on the free agent market, and they just never pull the trigger. So you have to wonder when Danny Ainge is going to start to feel some of that heat. Exactly. It seems like every year we are waiting on them to make a move. And while I don't think... Aldridge is that big splash move. If they get him, that's going to be one of the biggest moves they've made in years. I mean, what is another move similar to that? There really isn't any. I guess you could say getting Kemba Walker in free agency, but that hasn't panned out. Yeah, I mean, we thought they were all in the running. They were in the running for James Harden a little bit. Yeah. For Kawhi, for Anthony Davis. They got Kyrie. That didn't work out. Yeah, they got every Al single That didn't work mm, out. So. Every single player that has been available via trade, Boston's name is always in the mix, and they never pull the trigger. I think they should do it this time with LaMarcus Aldridge. It just makes too much sense at this point. But on to the next topic, the Utah Jazz. 
we know that they've been great in the first half of the NBA season. They are 27-9, and although they are on a two-game losing streak, but they do play today, and at the time of this recording, we are not sure of the results of the game, but... We'll just we'll just predict that they won because they have been winning as of they have been winning for the majority of the year. Their first seed in the NBA, they are the first seed in the NBA. But was the first half of the season just a great run? Or will they continue it in the second half of the season or will they slow down? What do you think? I definitely don't think it was a fluke. I think this is a really good basketball team. Um do I think they're going to remain at the same level they were playing at? I don't think they'll be able to maintain that same level of play because they were so ridiculously good. They were one of the best three-point shooting teams in the league. I think they were third in three-point shooting percentage. They were the fourth best defensive team in the league scoring-wise. I think some of that is maintainable, but all around, I think the shooting percentages, the efficiency that they had on the offensive side of the ball will be something that will be tough to replicate in the second half. The reason, though, they're not going to fall apart is because that defense is so good. Rudy Gobert is the backbone down there. You know what you're getting out of him. And as a unit, although they don't have the greatest individual defenders put together the way they work and their their defensive scheme, they do a great job starting and ending with Gobert at the five. And I don't see that going anywhere. So I think no matter what, even if the efficiency drops offensively, they're going to end up being one of the top three teams in the Western Conference. So, I misspoke. They play tomorrow versus the Rockets. Tonight, they don't play. But nonetheless, I think that they are going to maintain this level of play. And the reason for that is because they have the easiest remaining schedule in the entire NBA heading into the second half of the season. They're going to have a schedule of teams that have a combined win percentage of 47.47.475, which is below 500. The toughest opponents are going to be the Suns twice, the Lakers, Nets, and Blazers, which are all tough opponents, but I think they are capable of winning those games. But their next 10 games are against the Rockets, the Warriors, the Celtics, the Wizards, the Raptors, the Bulls, the Nets, the Grizzlies, twice, and the Cavaliers. You talk about them not maintaining their three-point percentage, but last season in the NBA, they were one of the better three-point shooting teams in the NBA. And the reason they have been so good from three this year is because they are getting open three-point shots. And when you're getting open three-point shots, I think you're you're pretty much going to make them most of the time. Right now, the Jazz are 13 points per game, fourth in opponent points per game, and they have the best net rating in the entire NBA with plus 8.8. Because of that, I think I don't see them slowing down. If they had a tougher schedule, I could see that. But I think this team is healthy. Everybody's going. Six players are averaging in double figures right now. So I think they're just clicking on, clicking on all cylinders. And I really don't see them slowing down to this point. I would say the West will be theirs to lose between the Lakers injury issues, the Clippers, I think, still trying to find their identity and having some struggles putting things together. I definitely think it is their conference to lose with the way they started. Yeah, so there's 36 games left for them in the NBA season. Right now, they are 27 and 9. Let's say they finish, let's say they go 27 and 9 for the second half of the season. They would be 54 and 18. So if they keep their current pace, they would finish 54 and 18. 49 and a half wins. You taking the over or under? 49 and a half? Yeah. 
I'm taking I'm taking the over on fifty wins for oh, the wow. Utah Jazz. I think they'll. I think at this pace they'll be fifty four and eighteen. You know, I think they can go fifty two and twenty. I think that's realistic. I I would probably take the over on that too because, like you mentioned, their schedule is going to be pretty easy in the second half. And you know, I, they've been knock on wood a pretty dependable group. Injury wise, there haven't been any guys missing extended periods of time. So Conley missed some time. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but I, I would bet on them being a fifty win team. Yeah, I think so too. And I think they might be the only fifty win team in the NBA this season. When you look about, when you look at how there's only thirty six games left, it's possible. It's such a weird year. Saying it's, like a fifty win team, that's like normal in any other season. Yeah. You know, I didn't find out until just the other day that this is a seventy two game season. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know they just cut it down by ten. I thought it was like a, maybe like a sixty something when sixty something game season. I didn't know it was seventy two, but yeah, I mean the Jazz. We'll see if they slow down or not, but definitely if they can keep this pace or be even better, then I think come playoff time it's going to be huge. And I mean, I think that seeding matters right now because you don't know when they're going to lift off restrictions and fans can be in the stands. So last year was different because last year you knew there weren't going to be any fans. But this year, because there is that potential for fans to be there, home court matters even more this year. And I definitely think you saw an impact last year in the bubble, guys performing in front of empty arenas. You know, there's no question that having 50,000 fans in the arena makes a difference compared to playing in, you know, an empty ballroom at Disney. So... I definitely think it would make a huge difference, especially in Utah, which is known as one of the most frigid places to play in the NBA. You know, those fans there are crazy. So they're they're crazy passionate. So getting, you know, a, a seven-game series there as opposed to having to go on the road for a game seven could be the difference. You heard about what happened with Myers Leonard? I did hear about what happened with Myers Leonard. What do you think about it? I just think it's it's ridiculous to me. Like, as somebody who has an Xbox and plays video games, like, to think that somebody at that level of anything, regardless of the NBA, like, somebody that has that much success sitting on a video game and being so careless with what they're doing, knowing how much is on the line with every word they say is just crazy to me. Because I feel like I'm more careful with what I'm saying and I don't have really anything to lose, to be totally honest with you. Like, nobody's going to record what I say and post it online and try and get me canceled. So for him to be doing that, it's just mind-boggling to me. Like, you have it all, and you're just so careless with, with what you're doing. And it's also just incredibly bigoted. Like, I don't know. You have more of a chance for that to happen. There yeah, are, you think so? Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of white people that get canceled for, for recording that are not don't have anything to lose. I mean, there are a lot of people that... They, <laughs> there are a lot of people that get uh if they say something that is perceived as racist or whatever it may be. There's a lot of people that go and email their school counselors yeah, and I've stuff, seen that. I've seen and they that. get expelled from school or whatever it may be. So, you definitely have more of a chance for that to happen to you. <laughs> I don't know about me. I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not black, but I'm not white. So I'm Spanish. So it really depends. I'm more in the middle. <laughs> I, I don't feel like I fit anywhere in this uh conversation when we talk about, you know. The, the boundaries, because I really don't know where my boundaries are. You, you know where your boundaries yes. are. You know where your boundaries yes. are. Me, I'm kind of like floating. But what I think about Myers Leonard, I think it's a pretty hilarious what happened with him. And 
I think it's hilarious what happened. Not not the word, not the slur that he said. And I'll be totally honest. I didn't know that was a slur until they said it was a slur. Yeah, I did not Yeah, I never knew what it was. But I think it is pretty hilarious because did you see the statement that they put out? I saw the statement. I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing. The statement was pretty much that uh, it was, he said it in the heat of the moment. And... He didn't know what the word meant. And it was just funny as hell to me because it's like you're you're a grown ass man. And for you to play video games, because I've played video games before. And I'll tell you, sometimes in Call of Duty, I get mad and you're always you're always, you know, talking trash to your opponents in the lobbies. It's It happens in Call of Duty. Not once did I just jumble up. Yeah, you, or, ne- you never you never go. There. Not 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 that, but not once that I just jumble up words together and just spit a word out. Like Myers Leonard acted like the word, like he just in his head created a combination of letters and just said anything. And he's like, "Oh, what can it possibly mean?" Yeah, and, and here's my thing: like I had never even heard the word before I heard it in that context. So you like. For me, it's very hard to believe that somebody would know that word and not know what it meant. Yes, because uh, me, look, I've never heard of that word in my entire yeah. life. But I didn't even know it was a slur or it, it even was a word that existed. But if I'm trash talking somebody online or if I die and he kills me, that is not something I think that no. I would create in my mind to, to no. say. Like, it's definitely something. That he says behind closed doors. Like, there's no there's no way. Like, there is no way that you can just come up with that word out of nowhere. Yeah, if this is the things that he's saying on... Like, if this is something that he slipped up saying on stream, what do you think he's saying when nobody's looking? Like, that's the thing for me. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Like, when he knows nobody's looking. When he knows somebody is looking, he's willing to say something like that. So what is he saying behind closed doors? That's the craziest part to me. Yeah, exactly. And I think it people do have to be careful. I mean, especially in this era, in this generation, everything is being recorded. Everything is being recorded. Yep. Some people care about it. Some people don't. But you have to be really careful about what you say. And Myers Leonard is that recent example. I think he got lucky. And the <laughs> fact that, you know, you know why he got lucky? I'll tell you why. He got lucky because I think right now in this time, at least this era that we're in, anti-Semitism doesn't get treated as seriously as being racist towards black people. Like it just doesn't like if he were to slip up and said the N word, he's out of, he's out today. He's out of the NBA. Like we can all agree today. He's out of the NBA. If he slips up and says that, but because he said something anti-Semitic, it's, Oh, he did something bad. We're going to give him a timeout in the corner, but he can come back in a few. Yeah, you know? and, and that was a problem in the NBA this offseason, too. In the NFL, there were a couple of former players who had some remarks, and it was a it was an issue, but it kind of went away without really much to be said about it. And, and I think you're right. And, it, it, you know, it's it's an inter- it would be an interesting research paper to see how different different races, ethnicities are treated based on, you know, the use of slurs and things like that, how things like that are perceived, because I definitely do feel like this was, you know, perceived differently than other situations. Oh, we saw the same thing happen with Nick Cannon. 
I mean, when yeah. Nick when Nick Cannon says something anti-Semitic, there was there was a 50-50 reaction to it. I wouldn't say 50-50. I would say more 70-30. There were 70 that chastised him, and there were 30% that they were agreeing with Nick Cannon, and they um, um, they believed in the conspiracy theory. So that's why I think that anti-Semitism is not treated as serious, and that's why I say Myers Leonard got lucky to an extent. He's still going to get chastised for what he's done, but not nearly enough if he would have said something different, especially when you know most of your teammates are black players. You know, I don't know how many Jewish players he has on the Heat that he's going to go into work and has to look them in the eye and say sorry. But if he were to slip up with the N-word, yeah, he would be cut definitely. Yeah. But I, I think it is really dumb of him to do, especially he's recovering from an injury and on stream. I don't know. For me, if you're in the NBA and you're already making millions of dollars and you already have attention and trolls on you the entire time, I don't think anybody would really want to add on to that and have to be cautious with what you say. Yeah, I mean, it's cool, like, interacting with the fans. I think that's a, a cool thing for a guy to do. But if you, like, you got to have a lot of trust in yourself that you're not going to let something slip like that. Or, you know, just don't be a bigot. And it yeah, won't matter. Exactly. And you know you know what's funny is that I face Saucy and Madden today. And I, I'll tell you something right now. I don't know why, but the game rewards him. Like with the with the dumbest plays, like, <laughs> like I have the perfect play to stop him, but it's either like my player doesn't jump for the interception or his running back has momentum and goes forward for the first down. It's always something. But I was playing him today, and he he's been beating me for the past couple of games. Not gonna lie, and I I won't I won't say look I won't say that. I lost unfairly because he beat me fair and square. But what I, what I will say is that he probably plays the game so much more. Like when I, if I practice for a day, I don't think he'll beat me. We used to play a franchise. That's how, that's how I met him. We used to play a franchise on Madden, NFL franchise. And I used to dominate him all the time. Like <laughs> dominate him. Like he couldn't get anything on me at, at all. Is the reason you're saying all this because you see him taking his victory lap in the chat? Yes, I see him. I, I see him looking. I see his chat. I see what he's saying in the chat, and that's why I'm saying that. But we're going to go on to the next segment in this podcast. We're going to talk about the Phoenix Suns because they have been phenomenal. This was brought to my attention because somebody had commented that, hey, the Suns are the second seed in the West. They jumped up in the rankings. Have you guys talked about it? And I read the comment, and I said, no, we haven't yet. So it's something we have to talk about. So the Phoenix Suns are 24-11. and 11. They're second in the Western Conference, and they are on a four-game winning streak. How dangerous do you think the Phoenix Suns will be in the playoffs? And before I let you go, I'll just say this. Monty Williams has done a tremendous job, and they have done a tremendous job drafting for as much slack as they get. Mikael Bridges was an excellent pick. Cameron Johnson was an excellent pick. DeAndre Ayton, he was the number one pick, and even though he gets overshadowed because Luka was in that draft and Trey, I think Ayton was a solid pick as well. And, I mean, they're building a really good core of players, but what do you make of the Phoenix Suns? When you look at them, they had a tough stretch towards the end of January where I think they, they had some COVID issues and then they came back and they lost a couple games in a row. 
And since then, they've been on a tear. They've only lost three games since the end of January, and they have really started to turn it around. Chris Paul has been a major key, bringing you know that veteran leadership and really turning around the identity of that program from last season where you know they had Devin Booker, they had eight, and they had the talent. And though they caught fire late and in the bubble, they just I feel like they didn't have that veteran experience to put them over the top. Not only has Chris Paul come in and been the perfect playmaker to pair with this group, but he's brought that edge that they needed. Devin Booker has been playing a lot better. And just all around, they've been a better unit. When you talk about what they can be and how much of a threat they could be in the West, I wouldn't quite put them on that level with the the Lakers, the Clippers, the Jazz, but I will say I have them right there with the Nuggets as a team that I think can surprise a lot of people come playoff time. I've said it about the Nuggets, and we'll talk about them. I think they could be a team that could sneak past the, the Lakers, the Clippers, or Jazz in a certain playoff series if things fall their way. I think the Suns can do the same thing if they keep playing this way in the second half. It's a big question mark because they're so young, because we haven't seen that consistency out of them in the past. And this is the first time we're really seeing this group with Chris Paul and getting them all on the floor together over a consistent basis of time. But if they can keep that consistent play over the second half, I think they could be a really dangerous team and one that nobody's going to want to see in the playoffs. Yeah, I agree with what you said. And before I go, the person who talked about the Phoenix Suns was Apex Prowler, the one who donated $5 to us in the stream earlier And I'm just going to say this. I'm sorry I forgot that it was you that mentioned it. We get a lot of comments a day. And it it is really hard to remember who said what specifically. But thank you for bringing the Suns to our attention. Now to give my take, they are 12th in points per game this season. Third in opponent's points per game. So their defense is really good. And when we talk about the Phoenix Suns, we thought the Suns were going to be a really good offensive team. I don't think we saw this defense from them. They are a really good defensive team. They're second in net rating, surprisingly. First is the Jazz, but second is the Phoenix Suns at plus 6.4. And I think earlier in the year, we had made a video talking about Devin Booker because personally for me, I was waiting on Devin Booker to be Devin Booker because I think to start the season, he was still adjusting to Chris Paul, so he wasn't really playing to the level that I thought he could play to. But as of recently, he's averaging 25 points per game, shooting 49% from the field and 36% from three. Devin Booker has has been amazing as of late. Chris Paul averaging 16-9, and DeAndre Ayton averaging 14.5 and and 11 rebounds per game. And then you got other guys like Mikael Bridges has took a major step in scoring, averaging close to 14 points per game, and Cameron Johnson averaging 10 points per game. There are seven Phoenix Suns players averaging in double figures right now. But I'm going to say this. Although I think they're a dangerous team for some teams in the first round of the playoffs, like I think you can look at the Jazz. I don't think the Jazz would like to face the Phoenix Suns. Uh, this, the Clippers, maybe a little bit. But outside of uh, the, uh, like, when we talk about the Lakers and Clippers, I don't think they're necessarily worried about the Suns because – The Suns have some major concerns that worry me. One is guard depth. You have Chris Paul, but who else is coming? Are you going? Yeah. (laughs) I like Cameron Payne, and I like Langston Galloway. But are you going to count on Cameron Payne and Langston Galloway in the playoffs? Are you going to count on Javon Carter in the playoffs? 
I don't, I just wouldn't. And then they don't have a rim protector off the bench. They have bigs like Dario Saric and Frank Kaminsky. And those two are good offensive players who can space the floor, but are they rim protectors? They aren't rim protectors. And when we talk about teams like the Lakers, the Nets, what is the thing that we always talk about? They need a rim protector. But when we talk about the Phoenix Suns, it feels like it just goes above people's heads and they don't need that. Yes, they still do need that. They need that badly. And right now in the playoff standings, they would face the Spurs in the first round. I, I think they can beat them pretty yeah. easily. It'd be I think it'd be a five game series at most. Yeah. They the Spurs should get swept that series. But if the Suns were to face the Mavericks, can't you know, am I going to give the edge to the Suns? I think that's a seven game series. That's a tough I, match. I think the Suns versus Mavs is a seven game series. I don't think it's I don't think it's a cakewalk for the Suns. You look at any team the Suns would play in the first round, whether it be the Mavs or the Nuggets or the Jazz maybe or the Lakers, the Clippers, just any team they could face in the playoffs. Yes, the Suns can win, but those teams can just as easily beat the Suns as well. So I think it's a toss-up for me. I think they can give any team a run for their money, but ultimately it's going to come down to how good is Devin Booker going to be in the playoffs? Is he going to be Donovan Mitchell when he made his first playoff appearance his rookie year, or is he going to be Chris Middleton-esque? Like, yeah. Not to be disrespectful, but how is Booker going to be? Because this is this is his first go-around in the playoffs, so we're not sure. Yeah, is he an alpha dog, or is he a number two option? And I don't think there's any shame in being a really good, a really good number two option, but it's something they got to figure out with him. And I would say the Suns are a very Jekyll and Hyde team. In a sense, they can come out and give you a stretch of games where they look like the best team in the league, and then they could come out a week later and look like a totally different team. And you mentioned it. They don't have that depth that you see with the Jazz. They don't have that that punch off the bench like the Jazz do with Jordan Clarkson and a couple other nice pieces that have provided for them this season. So, you know, when you're comparing teams, for a team without a major superstar, I think the Jazz should be the blueprint and the Suns don't have all the luxuries that the Jazz do to to complement the lack of that superstar talent like a LeBron James or a Kawhi Leonard. So it's definitely an uphill battle, but I do think, like you said, they're a tough out for pretty much any team in the West. Um, I guess if you're the Suns, you look at it, like you said, if the season ended today, I think the Spurs in the first round is a really good matchup for them. And then they would see the Lakers in the second round, and you'd have to hope that you know, they, they don't get back to form with Anthony Davis being sidelined. And, and you never know. Maybe they get a, a little bit lucky in a crazy season. I don't know. I think even without Anthony Davis, LeBron can beat the Suns. I would agree. LeBron with Harold Schroeder and all those guys, they can beat the Suns. Um, they drafted Jalen Smith. He has been a huge disappointment. Yes, he hasn't played at all. If, if Tyrese Halliburton was there, this conversation would be a bit different. And I keep on banging on that table because... We were here. We did a live stream on, on draft night. We had over 900 views on that live stream. We live streamed on draft night. And when the Suns picked Jalen Smith over Tyrese Halliburton, we both said, wow, that was a miss. How could you miss that bad? Like You need a point guard of the future, and you don't go Tyrese Halliburton, even though they did trade for Chris Paul. I mean, they still needed a guy to be his successor. Chris Paul is not your future. He is your now. So we both on draft night thought that was a huge miss. But I also want to say this. DeAndre Ayton has to take that next step. Like yeah. I know he's a really good center, but 
out of Arizona, we thought he was going to be a great center. I mean, they were comparing him to Shaq coming out of Arizona. He was supposed to be that guy. And to this point, he has been a guy, a really solid guy, but he has not been a 20 and 12. Yeah, he is not. Star. Yes. He has not been a Joel Embiid. You know, like we were expecting Aiden to be a Joel Embiid right now. And to, you know, to his defense, I'll say this. The Suns have a lot of scores on that team, and it's kind of hard to see where Aiden fits in all that. But regardless, I mean, Aiden has to be, he has to emerge into a star. Like right now, it's Booker and Chris Paul, and Aiden is third. But you know Booker and Paul are the stars, and Aiden is a, a step below. Yeah. Aiden has to be just there with them when it comes to star power. I even told you before the season when the when the Suns got Chris Paul, I said, I think this makes DeAndre Aiden an all-star. Yeah. And that, that's what my expectations were for him this season. It hasn't been to that point that as, as of late or this season so far. Maybe I'm, you know, putting too much expectations on Aiden, but that's what I think he should have been. You know, and when we talked in the preseason previews, I looked at the end of the season last year for the Suns, and DeAndre Aiden played really well for him. And that was when they started to turn things around. They made a playoff push, and they came up just short, literally like one great Damian Lillard game short of making the playoffs. And I said it. That DeAndre Ayton suspension at the beginning of last season was probably the difference between the Suns making it and not making it. And I thought that having him on the court all season this year was going to be the big difference. I thought this was going to be the him taking the big step. And you said it. He hasn't done that yet. And another guy you mentioned, Jalen Smith. Even though I thought it was the wrong pick, he still could have had a big impact for this team. You, you said it. They're looking for that rim-protecting big to come off the bench. And I thought he could have been that out of Maryland. You know, he did a good job there. As in college last season, but he just hasn't done anything. He's played in 11 games, five minutes a night, and he hasn't provided any impact for him. So even if they could have gotten anything out of him, it could have been a nice boost, but that pick missing is going to hurt them, I think, in the long run. Yeah, I agree totally, but you know we do think the Phoenix Suns are a really great team, yeah. but we just have to see how they do in the playoffs, but they deserve a lot of credit. This was a team who hasn't made the playoffs in like 10 years. You know, they've been waiting to get to the playoffs. They were one of the they they were the ninth seed last year and now they're the second. So they deserve a lot of credit. Chris Paul, Devin Booker, AN Monty Williams, that whole organization organization, James Jones, they have done a tremendous job. So this is not taking away from them at yeah, all. No. But we have to see what they do in the playoffs because this is their first go around in a long time. Yeah, and I would say they are one of my favorite teams to watch. They are a really enjoyable, fun style of basketball to watch. Yep. Next segment, we are going to talk about another Western Conference team. It is the Denver Nuggets. And to this point, the Nuggets are the sixth seed in the Western Conference, I believe. They are 21-15. and 15. And listen, I mean, we know that this has not been their best regular season, but is there a chance that they surprise us in the playoffs like they have been the past couple of years? Because we know in, in, 20, in 2019, I mean, two seasons ago, they were one of the top teams in the West. Everybody thought they were pretenders. Now they make a playoff run. Then last season, they, they were one of the top teams in the West again. Everybody thought they were pretenders. They made the Western Conference Finals. So this is a team that has been elevating every single year. So is, is this the year that they surprise everybody and take that, Really big step. Like, how far do you see them going realistically? 
I don't know if I see them taking that big step and, and, you know, becoming something they haven't been in the past, but I do think they can still be the team they've been in the past where, you know, they go into the playoffs as a nice, well-rounded team, finish the regular season strong, and can upset some teams that they probably have no business beating in the playoffs. You look at the Clippers last year as a perfect example. I didn't think they had any shot to win that series, but they're a well-coached team, and they have a good core of guys to do it. You know, they struggled out of the gates this year. They've been dealing with some injuries to a couple guys that have missed some time, and it's messed with their rotations. Now, if they can get healthy, Jokic is playing at an MVP level. There's no question he's number two in the voting to me right now. Jamal Murray got off to a slow start. He's playing a bit better, and we know he always kicks it up come playoff time. Michael Porter Jr. is slowly developing, it looks like, over the course of the season, even though he's been a bit of a disappointment. So it seems like they're starting to find their footing, starting to get going, and the wins have started to rack up a little bit more than the start of the year. And come playoff time, they're another team, like I was saying with the Suns, a team I don't want to face. Jokic especially is such a tough matchup in the playoffs because he's kind of like that Anthony Davis-esque incredible matchup issue because he can play the five but also be an incredible playmaker so he causes you know those matchup issues it's what gave the Clippers fits because they couldn't guard him one-on-one they would send the doubles at him and he's such a good playmaker that he would always find the open guy and that was how they picked the the Clippers apart for three straight games and I just think they're a well-coached team they have really good personnel and it's the perfect storm for upsets come playoff time but I don't see them being a favorite when they when they face off against at least the Lakers, the Clippers, I would even say the Jazz. Yeah, I can agree with that. I, I think definitely to this point they wouldn't be considered the favorites. I love the I love the Denver Nuggets, you know. I love Nikola Jokic. I love Jamal Murray. I like Michael Porter Jr. I'm a Knicks fan. So when we drafted Kevin Knox over Michael Porter Jr., I was pretty damn disappointed. And Jamal Murray Listen, we talked about this before the year. I thought he was going to win most improved player this season. And because we've seen Jamal Murray for the past couple of years average around 18 to 19 points per game. And then in the playoffs, he just takes it to another level. Like he plays like a all-star superstar level player. So I thought coming to, into this year, he was going to average 25 points per game. That's what I thought Jamal Murray was going to do. He hasn't taken that he hasn't taken that step, but he has taken a bigger step. He's averaging 22 points per game this season. He finally hit though that big 2-0 the 20s. So he's averaging that. So credit to him, but Nikola Jokic to me is even though we know how great he is, I think we still discount him because of how slow he appears to be and we'll just be honest, he's not a high flyer. He's not an he's not one of those players. But he's still a very exciting player to watch. And you look at what he's doing this season. He's fourth in points per game. I mean, the Nuggets are... Look at Nikola Jokic this season. When we're talking about advanced analytics, nobody is close to him. He's first in PER. He's first in estimated wins added. He's first in value added by a lot. And value added, I don't know how that calculation works, but Nikola Jokic is at 405 for value added. Value added. Giannis is second with 311. So <laughs> it's not even close. And even though Nikola Jokic gets these points and gets these assists, you'd be surprised to know that he's only 15th in the league in usage percentage. So 
He's not even in the top five of usage percentage, and he's still giving out this great output. And the Nuggets right now, they're fourth in points per game, and they're seventh in opponent points per game. For the past couple of years, we've always been, you know, batting the drum on the Nuggets are a great offensive team, but their defense, it, you know, it's not that great. But this year it has been pretty damn good. And I think if the Nuggets get their fully healthy squad back, they can be a dangerous team and surprise a lot of people. Right now, Paul Millsap is missing time with a knee injury. Jamichael Green is missing time with a shoulder injury. And Gary Harris is missing time with a groin injury. All of these players have missed 10-plus games this season. And Gary Harris, we know in that Clippers series, he was huge for them. Paul Millsap brings a veteran presence. And Jamichael Green is one of the more underrated role players in the NBA because he can stretch out and hit threes. He is a very good stretch four. So I think, you know, this Nuggets team can shock a lot of people I think if they face the Clippers, that's going to be a tough series. The Lakers, you know, last year, even though the Lakers beat them in five, that series could have easily went to six and seven if things kind of went a different way. And the Jazz, even though I love the Jazz this season, they're playing phenomenal. That playoff experience that the Denver Nuggets have, that resiliency, it's going to be a really tough out, and I wouldn't want to see the Denver Nuggets. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I I keep talking about that last year series against the Clippers. Talent-wise on paper, there's no way they should have beat that team. But Mike Malone does such a great job. Jamal Murray, it seems like every time he's in the playoffs, he just turns into a different player. And Jokic, he provides that same matchup issue that you get from a guy like Anthony Davis. I would even say Embiid creates that kind of matchup issue where you can't just throw a big on him because you can't play one-on-one against them. But if you throw a double, they have that playmaking ability and that shot-making ability that they'll make it hurt. So all of that being combined into one, like you said, also the defense is playing much better, which has been their Achilles heel over the past couple of years. If they can stay healthy, they'll definitely be a tough team to face in the playoffs. I think the Nuggets deserve a lot of credit for this one thing. They have a, an ability to draft really good players and then lose them. And it seems like they don't really miss a beat. You look at Malik Beasley. He's with Minnesota right now averaging 20 points per game. When Beasley was on Denver, I knew he was going to be that player. And that's why I was so upset when they traded Beasley because I thought Beasley was a really good player. Jeremy Grant this past season, they lost him. He's in Detroit averaging 24 points per game. If you even want to date back to an even earlier time, Evan Fournier, he was once a Denver Nugget. And he's in Orlando, and he's doing pretty good, you know. And regardless of that, the Denver Nuggets find ways to find these gems in the draft. You look at Zeke Naji, who looks like he has a lot of potential. He's starting to hit that outside shot. You look at R.J. Hampton, who is a raw prospect, but we all knew had we all know he has a lot of potential. The Nuggets tend to really hit in the draft, and because of that, I think they're going to they're going to you know be be good for a lot of years to come, for years to come, because they're going to hit on the draft. And I forgot to mention the biggest thing. They gave the Utah Jazz their core. Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert were drafted by the Denver Nuggets. You know, they gave them their core. So that, that's what I'm saying. Like, they're, they're, so, they're so great at drafting. Even Michael Porter Jr. was a risk, but there's a high upside for him. Bull Bull, the same thing. They tend to take the risk that other teams are afraid to take, and that's why I think 
they're in a good position. Yeah, and they, the draft is so huge for them because although you know Denver is a fairly decent market compared to some other cities in the league, they're not a big free agent destination. In fact, you know you look at situations like Carmelo Anthony trying to get out of there. So it's not like they're going to go out and get big-name free agents, but they've done such a good job hitting on the draft that they've been able to lose guys and recoup, it seems like, every single time, you know, I, they really haven't been a terrible team at all over the last decade. I forgot a player, Yusuf Nurkic. Yeah, it's another great example. Yes, yes. like th- their track record drafting is pretty insane. It is pretty insane. Just imagine a team of uh, Jamal Murray, Donovan Mitchell, uh, Michael <laughs> Porter Jr., Malik Beasley, Nikola Jokic, Yusuf Nurkic, Rudy Gobert. Gobert off the bench. Yeah, I mean, they do an ex- exceptional job drafting. Like it, It's pretty insane how great they are at drafting. Yeah, and it goes to show why they're at where they're at right now. Now we're going to transition to the next portion of the podcast. It is the football portion of this podcast. And before we get into this portion, I'm going to say something real quick. I just finished studying Justin Fields, and I will say this. I'm not going to pretend to be up here and act like I'm an analyst and, and stuff like that because I, I know there are a lot of people that take themselves way too seriously when it comes to this type of stuff when they don't know what's really going on. All I can see is the play that's happening, the throws that are made, but I can't sit down and watch the film and be like, oh, yeah, that was a cover two invert. They were dropping down a safety cover one robber. I can't go and dissect you with the plays that were called. So obviously there, there's so much more that goes into this. But I I finished watching Zach Wilson and Justin Fields, and it's not even close. Like, it's not even close. Like, from what I see, it's not even close. Like, Zach Wilson is just so special to me. And when I watch him, I am truly amazed. And the fact that I hear that he's being compared to Baker Mayfield makes me want to rip my hair out because – Baker Mayfield's potential is a really good quarterback, a starting caliber quarterback, even a even a low-tier franchise quarterback. But I think Zach Wilson is a superstar brewing. I really think so. He, he, like I said, he, his only concerns is that durability. That's it. And his timing. That's about it. Justin Fields, when you look at his game statistically, it, it's crazy because You know, if you were to check the box score, Justin Fields, 400 yards, five touchdowns, zero interceptions, you would be like, oh, my gosh, he had a perfect game. But when you watch the game, you're like, wow, this wasn't that good. Don't even take into account the stats. Just watching the game, I'm not very impressed with Justin Fields. Like, I think he has a lot to work with in terms of, like, his potential, his build, his athleticism. But he just has really poor ball placement. He... Doesn't throw the ball away nearly enough for me. He's insanely inaccurate on short throws. I mean, there are some passes where it's an easy check down and he throws a duck. And like you're like, what the, like, how do you miss that throw? There are sometimes he doesn't see reads, even in the Clemson game. I think the Clemson game was by far his best game of the year. Like it was, the Clemson game was a great game. Yeah. But even in that game, there were some things that were like, uh, some of, never, some, some of his best throws in that game were bad reads. Not even that, but it's like some of his best throws in the game, throwing a deep pass to Garrett Wilson, you know, 
okay, when you're throwing a deep pass, Justin Fields throws it. I want my quarterback to throw it in front of the receiver to where my receiver doesn't have to adjust the ball. Even in that game, there are, there's a lot of the receivers going like this, coming back for the ball. Better athletes in the NFL, they're going to get yeah. that. You know, so he has a bunch of separation with these receivers, and that's why they can adjust to that. But in the NFL, it's very hard to project. That's why I think I wouldn't be surprised if he falls out the top 10. Like, I really wouldn't. And I say that because if you're at four and you're at Atlanta, right now your quarterback is Matt Ryan. Arthur Smith is designing an offense around Matt Ryan. Why would you bring in Justin Fields and now when Matt Ryan is gone, have to design a completely different offense? Because you can't have the same offense for Matt Ryan as Justin Fields. Whereas Matt Jones, you can. You can have, because they are similar players in terms of how mobile they are and stuff like that. It doesn't make sense. Carolina, the same way. Joe Brady, his offensive scheme is all about dropping back and passing the ball. Justin Fields can't do that. Trey Lance, I watched some of Trey Lance. He doesn't have enough. Like, he doesn't have enough tape for me to really make something. I didn't really take notes on him. It's tough. Like, I can legitimately see Trey Lance and Justin Fields not going in the top 10 of the draft. Like I, I can see it. I can see it. It's tough, man, because I wanted to like Justin Fields, but watching what I saw, it's hard. And now I know. I learned my lesson because before I started actually looking at these quarterbacks and, you know, making my own opinion about them, I spoke too soon. I remember tweeting that Justin Fields is 2B and Zach Wilson is 2A. It's not even close. Like, it's not even close. So now I know for next year, I'm not going to speak prematurely. I'm going to wait until I have my full opinion out there. But, yeah, you know, I think Justin Fields has a lot to work with, but I don't think he's ready right now. Yeah, and just to add to your point about Mac Jones, not only Matt Ryan and building an offense for Matt Ryan, but Arthur Smith is coming from Tennessee where he built an offense around Ryan Tannehill, who was primarily a pocket passer, didn't really get out of the pocket much, and was surrounded by good weapons with a good offensive line. And you saw how prolific that offense was. So... I do think, you know, as low as I've been on Mac Jones throughout the process, that would be a good landing spot for him because I think he would, him and his play style would fit well in Atlanta where they have Julio Jones, they have Calvin Ridley, and they're still growing. They're probably going to be a pretty bad team the next two years, so they have good draft picks. They could free up some cap space and bring in some more talent on that offense. I think it would be a good fit for him there. Early in this process, I said that Zach Wilson reminds me of a faster baker. The reason I said that was because I was being really lazy with my analysis. And that's what I think a lot of people are being when they, when they compare the two. The only, the only reason why you can compare them is because both are white quarterbacks and they aren't very mobile. That's it. That, that's it. That's it. That, that's really it. But everything else, like in terms of throwing off platform, in terms of you know throwing at different arm angles, it's not even close. Like, I mean, Zach Wilson... Is, is special in that regard, is really special in that regard. But, you know, I think this quarterback, I'm going to I'm gonna um, study Mac Jones this week. It takes me a week to do a quarterback, maybe like a couple of days depending on how my schedule is because it is a lot. Like it takes a whole day. I'm going to do Mac Jones, then Trey Lance. Trey Lance is really not enough. I are, mean, you gonna, are you going to use his film from last year? Who? Trey Lance. That's that's the only thing I can use. Yeah. Because he only had one game this past season. That's why Trey Lance is is risky for me because 
he played in a very collegey offense, throwing to wide open receivers, and their team, North North Dakota State, was better than any other team on the field. And he's only had one year of playing in college football. That's why I don't think he's ready to play in the NFL yet. He has to sit down and learn. That's why I think it would be a mistake for a team to take him top 10 because he just doesn't have the experience. You know, so I have to really see. That's just my gut reaction. But so far, they're because off of my gut feeling, Lawrence is like one for me. Yeah. Wilson is two. Justin Fields is a floater. Like, I really don't know where he's going to land. Like, it depends on what I see from Mac Jones and what I see from Lance. But my gut reaction, because I've seen a little bit of Lance, I put Lance over Fields. Wow. Just because I think Lance has more upside. So and I think, think his both, arm is better. You think they're both projects, but you think Lance has a higher ceiling. Yes, I think both are projects, but I think Lance is... Uh, I think coaches can work with Lance better. They both have a good running ability. Lance has a better spiral. Sometimes the ball comes out wobbly for fields. It's weird. Like, yeah. it's not a tight spiral. So I think Lance has more potential. And I haven't watched Kellen Mond, but I'm going to watch Kellen Mond. You know, I'm going to... I'm gonna. <laughs> I think you're probably only doing that just to appease me. No, no, no. I'm going to watch Kellen Mond. <laughs> I'm going to watch Kyle Trask as well and see, you know, what goes on. But, you know, th- that's what it is for me. I'll pretty much... Uh, I'll see what happens, but I'm open-minded to what's going to happen. I'll watch some of the other quarterbacks as well, like maybe Sam Ellinger, you know. I, I know I know for next year that I'm going to I'm going to start this process way sooner because I started this process way too late. And I feel like because I started this process way too late, Chris Sims list is influencing me. Like it's it's influencing me. I'm not conscious that it is influencing me, but I'm also conscious it's that it is influencing me. Yes, exactly. So I'm gonna start this process way earlier because I don't want to feel like I'm being influenced for yeah. by an opinion. What do we have? A month until the draft? Just about. It'll probably yeah. be about a month and a week from from now. Yes. Yes. About wow, a month that's crazy. Yes. I feel like the season just ended. Yeah, I know. It's pretty crazy. And the offseason period is now, but we're going to talk about Dak Prescott right now. Dak Prescott got a, got a four-year, $160 million contract. He is being paid $75 million in year one, but that is not his cap hit. His cap hit is only $22 million because they are paying – that other $75 million with $66 million of his signing bonus and $9 million of his actual cap hit. His cap hit was originally, I believe, $31 million. So because you're uh because they transferred $9 million to the cap to to the you know to what they're paying him this year and the signing bonus, it's $75 million for the year. But that's not their cap hit. Yeah. And, and the way they structured it was smart. You you could even see though Jerry Jones said it in his press conference. I don't remember the exact wording, but I think he said was if there was anybody that was going to take advantage of me, I'm glad that it's the guy sitting next to me. At the end of the day, the Cowboys had their guy, and it's very difficult to replace quarterbacks in the NFL. It's such a slippery slope. You can get into the draft and think you have a stud prospect. And a lot of the times they just don't end up working out. Go back and look at quarterback draft history over the past decade. Yep. It is a much more hit or much more miss than it is hit. And when you have a guy in Dak Prescott, who I think is a borderline top 10 quarterback, was playing at an elite level to start this season, I think it's a much wiser decision to lock him up 
You know what you're getting out of him. The devil you know is better than the devil you don't. And as much as it might have been an overpay, with the way they structured the deal and bringing back a guy as talented as he is, I think you give yourself a better shot to compete over the next few years than you do if you were to go out and get a rookie quarterback, for for example, this this draft. Even it, though it, it is you know supposed to be a really good quarterback draft, but nonetheless, it's just such a, an, a hit-or-miss process. It's crazy to me because for some reason, I had this fascination of Mac Jones <laughs> getting drafted by the Cowboys. For some reason, Mac Jones, just his look, it just screams Dallas Cowboy quarterback. That's just my personal opinion, but I'll say this. When we uh, did this segment on Dak Prescott uh, last episode, uh, I was very hard on the move. The reason for that is because the contract had just come out. We just knew the face value of the contract. So I wasn't able to dive deep into the contract and dive deep into the Cowboys situation. But just to give an overview of Dak Prescott, in 2019, he had 30 touchdowns, only 11 interceptions, he threw for 4,900 yards, and he had a 99.7 quarterback rating. For his career, he has thrown 106 touchdowns, 40 interceptions, and he has a 97.3 quarterback rating. But the highest QB rating of his entire career was his rookie year when it was 104.9. Since his rookie year, he has never touched a 100 quarterback rating. So he has not been improving statistically at least, from his rookie year. But I'll say this. Dak Prescott needs a team to compete, just like most quarterbacks in the NFL. You need an elite team to win a Super Bowl. There is a scenario where the Cowboys can compete for a Super Bowl next year, and they can be serious contenders. And that scenario is if they restructure contracts. I mean, just yesterday... They restructured Lyle Collins, Tyron Smith, and Zach Martin, and they freed up $17 million of cat space. So right now they have about $16 million. If they were to restructure Amari Cooper's contract, Ezekiel Elliott's contract, and Demarcus Lawrence's contract, they can free up an additional $32 million. So the Dallas Cowboys, realistically, can be walking into free agency with $49 million in cap space. Who is, who is the Cowboys' defensive coordinator right now? Dan Quinn. He got hired by them. Who does Dan Quinn have a connection with? Richard Sherman with their Seattle Seahawks days, a legion of boom. Sherman knows the scheme. The Cowboys need a corner. They need a corner that can not only play well, but they need one who can mentor their young corners on that roster right now. Richard Sherman, to me, I believe he is going to be a Dallas Cowboy. He has... He thought he was going to be a Cowboy in 2017 when he was a free agent, and he has spoken highly of Dak Prescott in the past before. This is what he had to say about Dak. He said Dak Prescott was the toughest QB that he has ever had to face, and he said no disrespect to Rodgers, Brady, and all those other greats, but Dak was the toughest one I ever had to face. So high praise for Dak Prescott from Richard Sherman, but I believe in this free agency period, the Cowboys are going to sign two star free agents, two free agents of impact, two free agents that you say, how did the Cowboys get this guy? Or you're going to say, oh my gosh, they got him? And I'll tell you something. I think the two that they are going to sign are Richard Sherman and Dalvin Tomlinson. 
But I'll tell you this. Don't sleep on Shaq Barrett. <laughs> I don't think Shaq Barrett is going to stay in Tampa Bay because I think he's looking to get paid. You know, he he's not gotten paid too much throughout his career so far. He is looking to cash out. And right now, the Dallas Cowboys, they need another edge rusher next to Demarcus Lawrence. They need a guy like a Shaq Barrett. If you can get a Shaq Barrett and a Richard Sherman, look out, because that's going to be a really scary team. But I'm just going to go into this real quick. Teams that are over the cap can create more cap space by restructuring contracts. Restructuring is good because it frees up cap space, and how it works is that that team takes a player's cap hit and transfers it to their signing bonus. And the signing bonus is not a part of the cap hit, so therefore it frees up the space. The bad thing about this practice is that if teams do in fact do that, you are backloading the contract, which means the more they transfer Dak Prescott's cap hit into his signing bonus, now in 2025 and 2026, when Dak Prescott is not under contract, they are still obligated to pay him some money. So that's why it's bad. That's why the Saints right now are over the cap by so much because they have been doing that four years in order to compete with Drew Brees. But this is my hypothetical depth chart for the Cowboys next season. Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, C.D. Lamb, Dalton Schultz, Tyron Smith, Connor Williams, Alex Mack, Zach Martin, Lyle Collins. On defense, Demarcus Lawrence, Dalvin Tomlinson, Alden Smith, Jalen Smith, Leighton Vanderesk, drafting Jamin Davis out of Kentucky, Richard Sherman, Caleb Farley, Trayvon Diggs or Kevin King, getting Keanu Neal and Xavier Woods. I think that's a Super Bowl contending roster. That's a pretty good team. It, it, I would say it depends on how Dak comes back from the injury, but if you get the same Dak that you were getting at the start of the season last year, there's no reason that team shouldn't at least compete come you know January, late January. I think so as well, and this can easily be not Dalvin Tomlinson and Demarcus Lawrence and Shaq Barrett. You know, so... This can go either way, but I think right now Jerry Jones wants to do whatever he wants. He is willing to do whatever it takes to win right now. Jerry Jones has not seen the Super Bowl in a long time. He's out to prove everybody that he can win one. He knows that the time is ticking on this Cowboys team. So he is going to try and win and do whatever it takes to win now. So I think it doesn't matter if he has to restructure the contracts of every player on the team. He is going to do it to try and get these stars in a cowboy helmet. And I think, you know, as down as I've been on this move when it first happened, knowing how restructuring works, knowing the lengths that Jerry Jones is willing to go to, don't sleep on the Cowboys next year because they can be a legit threat. Yeah, and and there's no question the money is still, uh, you know, looming cloud over that team. But I think it gets to a point where... You look at it, and and it's almost like what the Saints have done. Just keep backing yourself down until you run into the corner. Try and win that championship while you have the opportunity. The money is eventually going to become so much of an issue that they got to blow it up and reset. But for now, you got the window. You just got your quarterback back. Take advantage of it. You have a lot of talent on that roster. You'd be silly not to try and take advantage of it. They're in a position to win, so make the most of it while you have the chance. I totally agree. We'll see what happens with the Dallas Cowboys next season. And based on my take, you would think I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm not. I'm a New York Jets fan. But I would be lying to you if I said I'm not going to buy a Dak Prescott jersey pretty soon (laughs) because I will, in fact, 
do that. He's a really likable guy. And I, I, mean, I love that. Did, yeah, I did love you that. listen to his, his press conference at all? I've listened to a, a part of it, a piece of it. I haven't listened to the whole thing. He is just a great, really well-spoken guy, like a guy you want leading the troops, I feel yeah. like. I mean, I, I caught the part in the in the press conference where he said that he has to be smarter. And he has to know situations in the game when he can you know, slide and not take unnecessary hits because the best ability is availability. I mean, Dak says all the right words. He's been through a lot. He's been a leading force and, you know, trying to bring mental health awareness into the forefront. He's a really good guy, man. And, you know, I'm rooting for him to win. I'm not, you know, and this is the thing, and this is what I want people to understand. Just because we talk and we are critical of players does not mean we want them to fail. Like, you know, I talked about Justin Fields um, just a while ago, and I talked about how I'm not hounding him as, as a prospect. Just because I'm not hounding him as a prospect does not mean that I want him to be bad so I can look right. If he's good, I'm not really going to care. I'm going to, you know, be happy that he's playing at a good level. You know, so this is just, I'm just calling it how I see it at the moment. Yeah. But that does not mean I am rooting for these guys to fail. Because at the end of the day, you know, when you look at guys like Dak Prescott, his goal is to win a Super Bowl. That's his dream. When you look at guys like a Justin Fields, his goal is to be a good NFL quarterback. So I'm not going to actively root against some some guy's, you know, dream and plan and goal in life. I think that's pretty evil. Yeah. But, you know, so <laughs> I think, you know, we're just talking and giving our opinion. So it definitely comes off that way a lot of the times. It's a good point. I'm glad you said that because I feel like when, you know, when you're not doing it and you're just watching people talk about things, you can get the sense that it seems like people are just haters. And I think that there are a lot of examples of that in the sports media field. I think there are a lot of guys that do want to see people fail, but I think that a majority of the time it just is analysis that seems, you know, worse than it is. You know, it's not it it's not as ill intentioned as it is as it seems a lot of the times. But it comes across bad because anytime you say something bad about a guy's game, you know, it looks like you're hating on him when realistically sometimes it's just the truth. The next topic we're going to talk about is Russell Wilson. We know there has been kind of a rift between Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks. Russell Wilson wanted more control of the offense last season, even when the offense was rolling. They gave Wilson that. Then in the second half of the season, the offense tanked. And now Pete Carroll basically doesn't want to trust the offense into Russell Wilson's hands because... He didn't do so well with it last season, which I think is a reasonable way to think. You know, you told me you can do it. I let you do it. You didn't do it. So now I don't want you to do that same thing. But it's hard to tell a guy who's making $40 million no. And because of that, there is a rift. And we're, we're hearing some teams that may trade for Russell Wilson. One of the teams at the forefront of those conversations are the Chicago Bears. Do you believe that the Chicago Bears are going to trade for Russell Wilson? Well, I'll say this. Overall, I've said from the beginning that these discussions came out, I thought it was ridiculous. I thought there was no way he was being traded. The more we hear about it, the more I think it's a realistic possibility. And so you have to at least analyze it and give it a second thought. The Cowboys off the table. They got their guy in Dak Prescott. There was only three other destinations that he listed that he would agree a trade to. The Saints were one of them. I think with their cap situation, I don't think it's a realistic option. I'm sure they could make it work, but is it worth making it work with all the you know all the hoops they would have to jump through money-wise? I just don't see that happening. So it comes down to the Raiders 
and the Bears. And the thing I'll say about the Bears is it seems to me that they're in a position where Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy and everybody else in that building is working for their job. They're playing for their job this season. And at the end of the day, what better way to win than bring in a guy like Russell Wilson? I think that Ryan Pace is in save-his-behind mode, and I think he will overpay to get a guy like Deshaun Watson or Russell Wilson. If they become available, I think the Bears will be the team to scoop up one of those two guys. And at this point, it's seeming more realistic to me that Wilson gets traded than Watson does because the Texans have yet again doubled down today that Deshaun Watson is their guy. There is no contingency plan. There is no backup plan. He will be there, or at least he'll be, you know, he won't be traded. He won't be moved. So that leaves Russell Wilson. Is he actually available? Who knows? But if he is, I would be willing to bet Ryan Pace is on the phone, willing to overpay to go and get him because he needs to save his job. I'm glad you mentioned Deshaun Watson because he's definitely a candidate to go to the Chicago Bears. But talking about Russell Wilson, you know, we know he's a great quarterback. He threw for 4,000 yards last year, 40 touchdowns and 13 interceptions. He had a 69% completion percentage. And the position that's been holding back the Chicago Bears this entire time has been the quarterback. Picking Mitchell Trubisky over Mahomes and Watson really set that franchise back. They tried to right a wrong by getting Nick Foles. Nick Foles was pretty disappointing. So they need a quarterback, and I agree with you. Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy, but Ryan Pace specifically, he is doing whatever it takes to keep his job. And I believe it doesn't matter if he has to give 15 years worth of first-round <laughs> picks. He's going, to give, he's going to give that much up to get a quarterback because I'd do the same thing if I was in his position. If I know... I don't get a guy who can play the quarterback position. And we we don't live up to expectations next season according to ownership. I'm going to be fired. So I don't care if I have to give 15 first-round picks to the Seahawks for Russell Wilson. I'm going to do it because if I get fired four years into this, it's not my problem anymore. And that's how a lot of these guys think. So because of that, I think that he is going to outbid anybody to get Russell Wilson or Deshaun Watson. And I think Deshaun Watson is more realistic because we know he's going to get traded. We know he's going to get traded eventually. I think he's going to get traded after June. That's just my, that's just what I think. But Russell Wilson, you know, do I like his fit in Chicago? Not that much because Matt Nagy seems like a hard-headed coach. Uh, and I think Russell Wilson is kind of a guy who's stubborn as well. So putting both of those guys in the same room together, I think, is going to create chaos. But when you look at the Bears' offense, in 2018, they had a ninth-ranked offense. In 2019, they had a 29th-ranked offense. And in 2020, they had the 22nd-ranked offense. And this is by points. So this isn't by yardage or anything like that. So it is clear they need a better player at quarterback to get that offense at a top-10 level because their defense is really good even though their defense has dropped off. In 2018, they had the first-ranked defense, 2019, the fourth, and now this past year, they had the 14th-ranked defense. So that defense has been declining. It is getting older. So is Russell Wilson coming into the 2018 Bears defense? No, he's not. He's coming into a defense that is declining just a bit, and the Bears' O-line is still not good. Their defense is aging, but I do like their weapons. 
I think them franchising, franchise tagging Allen Robinson says a lot about their pursuit in a quarterback this offseason. And believe it or not, I like Darnell Mooney. I think Darnell Mooney can blossom into an 1,000-yard receiver. I really believe in Darnell Mooney. And I think Cole Komet, he's the name you got to watch out for because I think he's coming as well. Yeah, and I love the fact that you brought up the tagging of Allen Robinson because realistically, what's the point of that if you're not planning on bringing in a quarterback that you think will keep him around? And when you look around the landscape of the league right now, what quarterbacks are doing that? There is nobody outside of Russell Wilson or Deshaun Watson that is available, or at least that we know of that's available, that will entice a guy like Allen Robinson to stay in Chicago after the offseason that he's had with what he said on Twitter and whatever he's gone out and said. I think they truly believe they're going to start the season with one of those two guys, and it makes total sense. You know, what does Ryan Pace have to lose? The worst-case scenario is he throws the Seahawks five first-round picks for Russell Wilson and then what? He gets fired. It's not his situation to deal with anymore. You know, you got a fire in the kitchen. You bring out the fire extinguisher. You clean up the mess later. But you got to put out that fire first. And I think right now, Ryan Pace has a fire in his kitchen, and it's the quarterback situation. And he's got to put out that fire before he can deal with the mess that comes after it. I mean, I agree. I like the analogy that's used. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I know you wanted. I know you wanted that pat in the back. I know you <laughs> thought it was gonna go over my head. But yeah, I agree. I agree. I think. They really do need to fix that quarterback position. I don't think Sam Donald is the answer. I don't think any of these project quarterbacks are the answer. They need to get a solidified guy, and I think they are going to do whatever it takes to get Russell Wilson or Deshaun Watson in the building next season. Now, I agree 100%. We're going to quickly talk about this topic because I think it's pretty crazy that this happened. Isaiah Wilson was traded to the Miami Dolphins we had talked about Isaiah Wilson earlier, about a week ago, about how his time might be up with the Tennessee Titans and he might be a first-round bust because he's had so many off-the-field issues. He even tweeted that his time he's his time as a Tennessee Titan is done and the Miami Dolphins traded a 2021 seventh-round pick for Isaiah Wilson, but the Tennessee Titans matched their seventh-round pick and traded them a 2022 seventh-round pick. So they basically exchanged seventh-round picks, and the Titans said, here, just take Wilson. Just take him off our hands. So Isaiah Wilson, he has a lot of upside. I don't think he was worth that first-round pick when the Titans picked him. But nonetheless, he is a guy who has a lot of potential. The Dolphins need offensive line help. I think this move... Because they made this move, I think it gives them even more of a reason not to draft the tackle at three. You know, I don't think they're going to be like, oh, okay, now we desperately need a Penny Sewell. So I think Isaiah Wilson, even though he is a project, I think that helped that cause just a little bit. But right now their tackles are Robert Hunt, Austin Jackson, two good young players, but I think Robert Hunt is more of a guard. Julian Davenport, who's a free agent. And this move was a low-risk, high-reward move. If Wilson lives up to expectations, the Dolphins have a starting tackle for years to come on a rookie contract. Yeah, and you said pretty much all there is to say. I I would even go as far as to say forget low risk. This is a no-risk high-reward move. You swapped seventh-round picks, essentially, and you got back a guy who, even if you think he was overdrafted in the first round, at worst, he's, what, a second-round talent if you totally forget the -the off-the-field issues? 
now the off the field issues are a totally different thing. I think Brian Flores is a good head coach. I think he's got a good culture going on down there in Miami. And I guess the hope is you bring him in and you can set him straight. But the fact of the matter is you got a chance to bring talent into the building, especially on that off- the offensive line where they could use some help. I think it makes perfect sense for them. They gave up essentially nothing to get him and essentially got the pick back that they gave up for him. So I think it was a great move for the Dolphins. I agree with you. I think it signals now they're definitely going to go with, you know, more than likely a wide receiver or maybe Kyle Pitts if they want to go crazy at three. But I I figured that they were going to go with a weapon already, but I think this essentially confirms it. There's no way they're going to draft Sewell. They're going to go with a receiver at three. And I I give them props because what's the risk? What is there to lose in this move? All you can do is get a, a second round talent back to shape, back to form. And then you look like geniuses. Yeah, I mean, I think this draft is about them drafting around Tua, building around Tua. So at number three, getting an offensive weapon like a Jamar Chase, because I think Jalen Waddle and Devontae Smith pretty much uh, paved their way out of getting drafted by Miami because they called Nick Jones better. So I don't think they draft none of them. Jamar Chase seems the most likely. And the Dolphins have another first round pick. Can they draft another tackle if he's there? You know, this is a huge possibility. Can they trade back and maybe get a Landon Dickerson from Alabama, who is the best center in this class, but he has some durability concerns, but he's still very good. I mean, next season, the Dolphins can have a revamped, not only receivers, but an offensive line. You, you can have Devontae Parker, Preston Williams, Jamar Chase, and the Dolphins are interested in James Conner and Aaron Jones. So an offensive Tua, Aaron Jones, Jamar Chase, Devontae Parker, and Preston Williams, I think is a pretty damn good offense. And Mike Gusecki, I'm forgetting about him as well. But that's a pretty good offense. Yeah, and you're talking about an offense surrounding Tua, who the question marks have swirled ever since last season. You know, I think people wanted him to perform better in that first year, but the fact of the matter is the offensive line wasn't great. The weapons weren't great. So now if you could come back this season with an improved running back, a couple of new receivers, and a better offensive line, you give him a chance to prove himself. Who knows? Maybe he has a breakout second season, and you definitely give him a better chance to succeed than you did last season. You know, I think think this next season he's going to have a breakout year. And what I mean by that is that I think he's going to, this next season that he plays is going to be the season that everybody's like, oh, okay, so he is a starting quarterback in the league. Oh, okay, so he is a quarterback worthy of leading an offense. Because I think right now there are a lot of people on the train of Tua is a bust. And, you know, you know that I was very critical of Tua early in the year. And that's because they drafted him over Justin Herbert. And I think that's fair to say. I mean, you drafted Tua over a quarterback in Justin Herbert, who I think is going to be an exceptional quarterback. So, of course, it is a move that in hindsight, you're like, wow, that was a bad move. But, Never did I say Tua was going to be a bust. I never said that once. I just said the Dolphins are going to regret drafting Tua over Justin Herbert. And to this point, it looks like it's pretty true. But I will say this. There is this growing there is this growing um, idea that the Dolphins should take a quarterback at three because Tua is not that guy. And I'll say this. Yes, only if this happens. <laughs> And you know what you know what that is? Yeah. If Zach Wilson yeah, exactly. if Zach Wilson falls to three. 
if Zach Wilson falls to three, yeah, then you take Zach Wilson because I think Zach Wilson really is special. But Justin Field is not ready to play right now. Trey Lance is not ready to play right now. So you take Trey Lance or Justin Fields at three, that's pretty That's pretty damn stupid to me. Yeah, and I don't think that drafting Mac Jones at that spot would be putting him in a position to yes, succeed with and, that offense. And that's the thing is, you know, I like Mac Jones as a prospect, and I think you can argue that he's a slightly better prospect than Tua because he is taller, he has a better arm. But Mac Jones at three, you know, how much of an upgrade is he going to be over Tua if you're not going to get a Jamar Chase? You know, I think Tua is capable of being a really good quarterback in this league. People have to tone down the criticism because he dealt with a lot. He dealt with a career-ending groin injury at Alabama. He had no offseason, and Brian Flores was basically playing QB carousel with him (laughs) by benching him a bunch of times. So he dealt with a lot last season. This next season, having a year under a new brand-new offense, having an offseason, having more weapons, having a better offensive line, he is going to be better. We know. Like, you know, it boggles me that some people have not understood this about the NFL. Situations matter. And the Dolphins have one of the better situations in the NFL right now in terms of the weapons around Tua. Like, Tua's not walking into a situation that Donald walked, walked into yeah. where your best receiver is Jamison Crowder. I mean, Tua has legit guys on that offense. So he is going to be good in that offense. Is is he going to light the world on fire and be a be a top five quarterback? I don't think so. But is he going to be a good quarterback? Is he, is he going to show you, yes, I can win games for the Dolphins? I think he will. And I think all of the criticism and all of the people calling him a, calling, calling him a bust one year into his career and not even a 16-game sample size is pretty overblown. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, like, the one thing you mentioned that I'll – add on to if they do get Zach Wilson to drop to three and they drafted him the good thing is if you did move on from Tua I think you could still get some really good value for him from some quarterback needy team in the league yeah like I said the only player I would draft over Tua I would I would draft to replace Tua in this draft is Zach Wilson and Lawrence I would imagine but he's yeah yeah going but he one. yeah we know he's going one it's either gonna be Wilson or Lawrence yeah. so that's the only reason that's the only way I do it and I don't think Zach Wilson is going to fall to three. I think he's going to get picked second by the Jets. I hope so. I agree, and I think even if the Jets don't pick him, they'll trade out of that spot and somebody else will pick him. Yes, there are two number one picks in this draft. It's Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. There is no reason for the Jets, even if they for some reason don't want Zach Wilson or they think they have their guy in Sam Darnold, there's no reason for them to pick a two because somebody like the Panthers will give them a haul for that second round pick or that second overall pick, I should say. Yeah, no doubt about it. So I'm hoping I'm hoping Tua does succeed because, you know, I think this past year the criticism towards him has been really unfair. But now we are going to go into our second to last topic of the episode. It's our off-season previews, and we're almost done with these. I mean, we have the Cowboys that we're going to do now, then the Eagles, then we're doing the NFC South, so the Saints, the Bucks, the uh the uh, who else the Panthers and the Falcons so we're almost done with these it took a while but we're finally here <laughs> you know these I'm, gonna I'm not t- gonna miss them yes I'm gonna tell you guys now these are a lot of these are a lot of research it takes a lot of research to do these videos and even with all the research you do on them it it at least for me it still feels like I don't have a perfect grasp like you know obviously with the Jets I'm watching them the full season so I feel like I have a pretty good idea 
of what they need and all that. But I feel like that's a hard time, a hard thing to pick up even in a few days of preparing. So it is, it is, it really is. So the Dallas Cowboys off season, the major domino is already in place. They signed Dak Prescott long-term, which is what they needed to do because they restructured the contracts of Tyron Smith, Zach Martin and um, Lyle Collins. They have about $16 million in cap space and some potential cuts could be Anthony Brown. I don't think they do that. Greg Zerline, I don't think they do that either. Or Chris Jones, their punter. I think that's a possibility. But if they restructure the contracts of Amari Cooper, Demarcus Lawrence, and Ezekiel Elliott, they can create up to $48 million in cap space. And I think that's a lot of money to work with and to make this team as good as it can be for next season and hopefully compete for a title. Yeah, yeah, and I think the biggest domino, like you mentioned, is the one that already fell. The quarterback was the big question. Were they going to bring back Dak? Were they going to look to to recoup through the draft or go out and get one of those names that was on the market this year? And I think they did the right thing bringing back Dak Prescott. I kind of talked about it during the segment on him, but he's their guy, and he's been there for a few years now. I said it before, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. I think this guy, when he's healthy, is a top 10 quarterback borderline in the league. You could say he's just on the outside looking in. But no matter what, that's a hard thing to replace at the NFL level. And I think he is more than talented enough to lead a Super Bowl team if you put a good enough product around him. So I think they made a great decision by bringing him back, even if the price might be a little bit high. Did you just say the devil you know is better than the devil you yeah, don't you know? you never heard that saying before? I've never heard about yeah. that saying. Yeah, the devil you know is better than this. So you know what you're getting out of Dak Prescott. I'd rather deal with that and try and build no, a contender around him. I, than, I get it, but I wouldn't you know. want to know any devils. Oh, no, of course not in a perfect world, but there's no such thing as a perfect world. Okay, so <laughs> they have some pending free agents. Tyrone Crawford, Sean Lee, Andy Dalton, Alden Smith, Blake Bell, Awuzie, Jordan Lewis, Xavier Woods, Antoine Woods and Joe Looney, their starting center. For me, all of these guys can go. You know, the only two guys that I'm really, I would keep are Alden Smith and Xavier Woods. I wouldn't keep a Wouzier because I think a Wouzier, uh, his market is going to be $8.5 million. He's a good corner, average to good corner, but I'm not paying him that much money. I can get Richard Sherman for $2 million more. So why am I paying a Wouzier that much? I'm not going to go a Wouzier. Jordan Lewis, maybe, but I still would let him walk. Sean Lee, too, too injury prone. Alden Smith, I'd like to keep him because Alden Smith missed five years of football. And this past year had a pretty okay year with the Dallas Cowboys. Imagine him, imagine him with an offseason to prepare, to prepare his body. I think he's going to be ready. So I would, you know, I would re-sign Alden Smith if they don't get a guy like Shaq Barrett in free agency. You kind of took the words right out of my mouth there. The only guys that I would even consider bringing back would be Alden Smith and uh, and Xavier Woods. And the only way I would bring those guys back is if I don't think I can get better options in free agency. And I think you can upgrade both of those positions with the way they've restructured contracts. But I would definitely take a look at them, see what their market is looking like, and I, I would consider bringing those two back. Everybody else can go. So... As I was as I was preparing for this video, somebody had told me that Donovan Wilson is actually a really good um strong safety, and because of that, the the Cowboys shouldn't go out and get a strong safety. I had I didn't watch the Cowboys extensively last season, so I can't tell you if that's true or not. 
but I'm going to take their word for it. So because Donovan Wilson is a good, strong safety, we the team needs are free safety, cornerback, outside linebacker, defensive tackle, and center. So at free safety, of course, the big name is Anthony Harris from Minnesota. You know, he's the guy that he can cover. He's rangy. He would be a perfect fit with the Dallas Cowboys. At cornerback, you got guys like Richard Sherman, Patrick Peterson, Shaquille Griffin, Desmond King, William Jackson, and and Kevin King. At that position, I'm honing in on two guys. Richard Sherman, because he played in Dan Quinn's system and he knows the cover three scheme, and Kevin King. Mike McCarthy, when he was with Green Bay, drafted Kevin King in the second round. Right now, if you were if the Cowboys were to get Richard Sherman, they would have a corner who can cover the boundary and can play on the outside. Kevin King is more of a slot corner. He struggles in he struggles covering on the outside. Because of that, I think Kevin King would be a perfect fit being a slot corner. And you can have Richard Sherman, Kevin King, maybe Trayvon Diggs, but I think the Cowboys are going to draft a corner in this draft too. Yeah, and when you look at that secondary, I think you look at the safety position, Anthony Harris. With the money they've freed up, they've put themselves in a position to go after the big names. So I think Marcus May, before he got tagged, would have been a perfect fit for him. Uh, unfortunately, he's no longer available. So I would say Anthony Harris, Marcus Williams is another guy they could target there. And then at the cornerback position, I think Richard Sherman and Patrick Peterson are both guys who, going into the twilight of their career here, you know, I think they're looking for a contender that they would want to take a pay cut. You know, you look at Rick, Richard Sherman, he's also been linked to the Jets because of Sala, but I think he would be enticed by a contender where he would take a pay cut and not only play a role on, you know, a, a championship level team, but also I had the Cowboys looking at cornerback in the draft. Having Richard Sherman in your cornerback room, I think he said he wants to play two more years, if I'm not mistaken. So, Having that veteran leadership in the cornerback room would be huge for whichever rookie they're bringing in. So I would look at those guys. But I think you mentioned the guy that should be their prize possession in free agency, and that's Shaq Barrett. He should be at the top of pretty much every list of every team in the league in this free agency. If you can get him, you give him whatever he wants. He is a game-changing talent at that edge rusher spot. If they can bring him in, it, it really boosts them to a different level. So Richard Sherman market value is about $10 million per year. Shaq Barrett, I'm assuming, is going to be about $20 million because he is a premier edge rusher. Realistically, if the Cowboys were to sign both, they'd spend $30 million and have $19 million in cash space left. So let's just say they do do that. And, And Before you go any further, is that taking into consideration the money they'd have to pay their draft picks? Draft picks is about, I think, maybe six to seven million. So... They'd have about maybe $13 million left. So let's just say they do do that. And that's the reason I wouldn't do it. I think they have to they have to stick to one real legit game changer and then another guy who's like good but not great. You know, so at defensive tackle, Dalvin Tomlinson, Kwan Short, Jarrell Casey, Nadamakin Sue, Daquan Jones, Jonathan Hankins, Adam Butler. There are a lot of good defensive tackles. I mean, can they bring back Gerald McCoy for a year on a yeah. on a you know low contract? K1 short, a former Pro Bowler, Jarrell Casey as well, and Dominic Sue. They have a lot of options, defensive tackle. Yeah, and I don't think it's an issue at all to, you know, I it's it's a good problem to have to only have money for one game changing talent. There's been a bunch of teams that we've gone through in these offseason previews 
They barely even have money to bring their own guys back, let alone bring in one difference maker. And I don't think this Cowboys roster is that far off. So bringing in one guy with the impact of a Shaq Barrett could turn this team to a title contender if Dak Prescott comes back healthy. So I think they're in a really good spot with the money they've freed up. So they have Because when I saw the Dak contract, I was like, I don't see how they're going to make this work. But I got to give them credit because they've done a good job freeing up cap, especially for the The reason they could do that is because every player on the Cowboys, most of the good players at least, have a clause in their contract that the Cowboys can transfer their cap hit to their signing bonus whenever they want. And all they have to do is send an email and then they create cap space. (laughs) So... You know, it, they have a they have that luxury, but I don't think they have to replace Sean Lee in free agency because I think this is a linebacker heavy class. So we'll address that in the draft and at center. You know, you got guys like Ted Caras, Austin Ryder, and Alex Mack. I know they drafted a center last year out of Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah I don't know how to pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try. But I don't think he's ready to play yet. Because of that, I think they have to sign a center. And I'm looking at Alex Mack, a former pro bowler, next to Lyle Collins, Tyron Smith, and Zach Martin. I mean, you can you can afford Connor Williams to be average because your offensive line is stacked if you get Alex Mack. Yeah, I feel like Alex Mack has been Mr. Dependable in these offseason previews for teams that don't have that premier money at the position but are looking for a solid option at the center position. I feel like Alex Mack has been Alex Mack has been the guy to look to the guy to look to. And with that offensive line around him, I think it would be a, a really good line to put Dak Prescott behind. So my offseason, this is who I have the Cowboys signing. Richard Sherman, Kevin King, Anthony Harris, Alex Mack, and Dalvin Tomlinson. I don't know if they can get all of those guys. Maybe you have to not get Anthony Harris or you have to cheap out on the safety position or not get Alex Mack. But that would be my lineup. And then they have 11 total draft picks in this draft. So they have a lot of draft capital. They have the 10th pick in the first round. And I think that 10th pick is between two players, Patrick Sertain the second and Caleb Farley. Those are the two. If Sertain is there, you take him. If, if he's not there, you take Farley. That's it. Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. I have him going cornerback at the 10th overall pick. Those two guys are projecting to be, you know, really great prospects coming into the league. They're supposed to impact your defense from day one and at a position that the Cowboys really need. If they really wanted to, it's a pretty deep cornerback class, so they could dive back into the second round and wait for an Asante Samuel Jr. type player. But I think it makes much more sense to go right out of the gates, get that cornerback where there's two great options at 10. Yeah, no doubt about it. And then they have some. there's some linebackers in this draft class who are good, like Jabro Cox, Jamin Davis, Pete Werner out of Ohio State. At center, Creed Humphrey, Quinn Miners, Landon Dickerson. At running back, who's a receiving back, Demetric Felton out of UCLA. I think he's a really good fit there. Carlos Basham, an edge rusher, they can get maybe in the third round. And Dwayne Eskridge, a wide receiver, if they want to draft a wide receiver. For me, I think this draft, they draft Caleb Farley, Jamin Davis, Carlos Basham, or our Darius Washington with their first three rounds. With the first picks in the, in the first three rounds, I think those are the three guys. Drafting a corner, drafting a linebacker, and drafting a safety. Yeah, and I really like you mentioned Jabril Cox. I think he could be a great fit with this team because of his versatility. I think he would match the Cowboys scheme really well, and I think he could fit in good from day one and, and move around like a Swiss Army knife in that defense. Yep, so I mentioned early, earlier, this is my dream depth chart for the Dallas Cowboys. Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, CeeDee Lamb, Dalton Schultz, Tyron Smith, Connor Williams, Alex Mack, Zach Martin, 
and Lyle Collins. On defense, it's Demarcus Lawrence, Dalvin Tomlinson, Alden Smith, Jalen Smith, Leighton Van Der Esk, Jamin Davis, Richard Sherman, Caleb Farley, Trayvon Diggs, or Kevin King, whoever you want to slot in there at that spot, and Anthony Harris and Donovan Wilson. So I think that is a Super Bowl contending roster. We'll see if the Cowboys choose to restructure even more contracts and free up even more cap space. But I think this free agency period is going to be very exciting and Cowboys fans should be very ecstatic about what is to come because I think there are some big-time moves that are going to happen. Yeah, no question. They should be at least in the discussion of contenders in the NFC over the next few years. Yeah. At least I hope so because that's been the narrative for, like, years. Yeah, seriously. It feels like ever going back to that, like, the one game that sticks in my mind is uh, the game with Aaron Rodgers where he made those two ridiculous throws late. I feel like ever since then they've been kind of stalled. But they have the talent to do it, so if they hit this offseason, they should definitely be in the combo. No doubt about it. Now we are going to talk about the Philadelphia Eagles. So it came out that Jeffrey Lurie is all in on Jalen Hurts. I think the organization is going to try to build a team around Jalen Hurts and have them competing. So with that in mind, we are going to build this team around Jalen Hurts so there is no taking quarterback at number six. We're going to see what happens. So right now, the Philadelphia Eagles are over the cap by $17 million. They could free up $10 million by cutting Derek Barnett, an additional $5 million by um, cutting Zach Ertz. Alshon Jeffrey, even though he, a lot of people think he is a cut candidate, if they cut him, they take on a dead cap of $3 million. So I don't think they do that. Marquise Goodwin frees up $4 million. And then if they cut these players post-June, then Fletcher Cox, and Cox can free up $16 million and Brandon Graham can free up $13 million. I don't think they go that route, but pending free agents right now, Deshaun Jackson, Jason Peters, Jalen Mills, Nikel Roby Coleman, Vinny Curry, Nate Jarrity, and Richard Rodgers, I don't think the Eagles are going to have enough money to even sign free agents. I think they're going to have just enough money to maybe sign, re-sign a guy and for their draft. But, I mean, they are in a bind right now. Yeah, they're they're in a really tough spot money-wise. Looking at this list of guys that they're trying to bring back, I, I you got to keep it to like one or two guys that they should really key in on. The two guys that I picked out of the list that I would really try and focus on bringing back are Jalen Mills and Jason Peters. I feel like it's two positions of need for them and two of the most impactful guys on the list. The price tags might be a little bit much for them to match, but if they can make it work out of any of the guys on the list, those would be the two guys that I would target to bring back. But again, the money is going to be so tough that I don't even know if they're going to be able to make that work. Yeah, I I think the only guy they should try to bring back is Jalen Mills because he has been a pretty productive player for them. But these are their positions of needs. They need a cornerback. They need another receiver. They need a linebacker. They need linebackers because their linebacker core is bad. They need a defensive end. They need left tack, a left tackle and a left guard. It really depends on if you think Andre Dillard is the answer at tackle or at left guard. To this point, I don't think he has shown that he is that. Because of that, I don't know. They Maybe the Eagles should address that in the draft. We'll see what happens. But in terms of free agency, I think the Eagles... They can't sign any big-time names, so they have to try to go for players who have failed in different situations 
and maybe revitalize their career at cornerback. I got guys like Kevin King, Garyon Conley. You know, even though he's not a bad corner, Michael Davis from the Chargers, I think he was good with the Chargers, but if the Eagles can bring him on a team-friendly deal, he can make an impact. And if the 49ers don't bring him back, Jason Verrett. You know, I think Jason Verrett is a really good corner, and he can solidify that cornerback room for the Eagles. Then at linebacker, Gerard Davis, a failed first-round pick. Neville Hewitt, who wasn't too bad with the Jets. Patrick Onwasar, Anthony Walker Jr., who's, who's a linebacker for the Colts and Devondre Campbell, you know, so they have to really go on a budget here because there isn't really much to work with in terms of cap. And at left guard, maybe they can bring in um, Brian Winters or Elijah Wilkinson from the Broncos, but, you know, it's going to be really tough for them to sign guys this offseason. Yeah, that's the thing with the money situation. Everywhere I was looking, I feel like I was just running into a brick wall because they have no cap, you know, obviously – it's such a deep class for the wide receivers, but the problem is they can't afford any of the big names. They're they're really going to have to build through the draft. You hit on a couple of the inexpensive options that they could target, but they're going to have to play really low-key in free agency, and I think the draft is going to be the bread and butter. Not only this year, you know, I don't expect them to compete next season, but the, the next two years they really have to do a great job drafting, and that's where they're going to have to build up their talent because they just don't have the money to make any game-changing moves in free agency. So I have these three players that they can sign uh, that I would sign if I were them. Garyon Conley, Gerard Davis, and Devondre Campbell. Two linebackers. I think Devondre Campbell is actually solid. He can cover. Gerard Davis is more of a project, and so is Garyon Conley. But I think, you know, that's what they need. They need some talent in the building, however they can get it. And in the draft, this is a good thing. They have the sixth overall pick. But they also have two third-rounders and and three fifth-rounders. So they have a lot of draft capital to work with. Maybe they can hit on these draft picks. But I think at the sixth overall pick, it's between three players. It's Jalen Waddell, Devontae Smith, and Kyle Pitts. And that's it. For me, at six, it's a no-brainer. I think it's Jamar Chase. I think, to me, he's... I don't the, think he's there. You don't think he's going to get there? No. You think he'll be a Dolphin? Yeah. If he gets there, I think it's a no-brainer. I think it's Jamar Chase. If he doesn't, you listed the the available weapons. You know, Waddle will be up there. Smith will be up there. Pitts. It's got to be one of those weapons. You have to bring in someone for Jalen Hurts to throw to. And that was kind of part of the downfall of Carson Wentz, I would say. There was other issues, but it definitely didn't help the weapons that were put around him. And you're just going to leave Jalen Hurts out to dry if you don't bring somebody in. You're in a prime position at six overall to bring in a game-changing talent. There will be a couple of them on the board. And I think one of those four guys, they'll probably not all be there, but one of those four guys has got to be the pick. See, look, I think if if Kyle Pitts is there, it's going to be really hard to pass up on him. Because Nick Sirianni, knowing him and what he did with Indianapolis, uh, he likes to run a lot of mesh concepts. I think Devontae Smith fits that better than Jalen Waddell. So I can see them going the Devontae Smith route, you know, running him off the screens, running him off of uh, drags. I think that's a realistic option. But for me, I just think they're going to go Jalen Waddle if he's there. Yeah, I think they go Jalen Waddle. And one of the other concerns about Waddle is coming back for that injury. What is he going to be? We saw him play in the college football playoff, and granted, I know he rushed it back, and he shouldn't even have been out there. But he definitely did not look like the same guy. He didn't have that same explosiveness, and I still think he was recovering, but you got to question if he's ever going to have that same level of explosiveness back, and that's part of what made him so great when he was you know, putting up those crazy numbers at the start of the season. 
you look at Pitts, and a lot of people like to use the argument that you know top top round tight ends haven't panned out the past couple of years. I think that Kyle Pitts translates to more of a wide receiver in the NFL than anything, or at least a wide receiver playing the tight end position. The guy is a Swiss Army knife. He can do it all, and I think he could transform an, an offense. I think he'll end up being one of the best players in this draft. So I think yeah. that would be a solid pick for So him. I think, you know, that's why I said it's going to be really hard to pass up on Pitts if he's there because if Pitts is there, I think he can be more impactful than Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle. So I would I would be all for I would be all for them drafting Kyle Pitts. But then you got guys in the second round like they can draft like Jabril Cox or Jamin Davis to get a linebacker. I think Jabril Cox fits their scheme better. So I think I would go with Jabril Cox. And at cornerback, maybe Greg Newsom the second or Aaron Robinson. But this draft, they have to fill wide receiver, linebackers, cornerback, and maybe get a tackle because this is a tackle heavy draft class. So they can get a tackle in the third, fourth round, or even or even one with their fifth round pick. So I think those are the most important positions to fill. Yeah, if they wanted to go tackle, I think they could go with somebody like Alex Leatherwood from Alabama in the second round. He should be there at that pick. Uh, I, I don't think that would be a bad pick. There's so many things that they can do because there are so many holes. I think they could also go wide receiver later on. It's a deep wide receiver class, so a guy like Rondell Moore, maybe Rashad Bateman, although I don't know if he falls that far, uh, Dwayne Eskridge. Um, or, you know, there's some defensive options. You could go cornerback, Asante Samuel Jr. in the second, Paulson Adebo, or Paulson Adebo, however you pronounce his name, from Stanford, the cornerback, should be there at their third-round pick. So there's options uh, at, at you know they have so many positions of need that there are going to be so many options at every pick they have. You know they they really got to hit on these draft picks. And you mentioned Asante Samuel; he was a three time Pro Bowler with the Philadelphia Eagles. There you go, runs so, in the blood. You know, getting Asante Samuel Jr. I think it would be a pretty good get. But overall, I think this is what I project their depth chart to be at least offensively. Jalen Hurts, Miles Sanders. Uh, Jalen Jalen Rager, Jalen Waddle, Travis Fulgham or Alshon Jeffrey, Dallas Goddard. I don't think Jason Peters is there. I, I don't know how, how they're going to fill that left tackle forward. Uh, left guard, I mean, I think Ajay Dillard will probably start. At guard, I'm not sure. Probably Isaac Samuwalo. Uh At center, Jason Kelsey, then Brandon Brooks and Lane Johnson if they don't cut any of those guys. And, you know, I think this it's going to be a pretty – long rebuild for the Eagles at least two more seasons until we're really looking at them and saying they can compete because Carson Wentz taking on that dead cap by trading him was a huge blow to this organization it's just going to be really hard to build around Jalen Hurts and who knows how Nick Sirianni is going to be as a coach there are a lot of things working against the Philadelphia Eagles right now. Yeah, I would say two years is optimistic, and you got to feel bad for Nick Sirianni. Obviously, anytime you get a head coaching opportunity in the NFL, it's a great opportunity. You have to take it, but this is probably one of the worst situations in the, in the NFL that you could have gone to when you take into consideration talent, cap space, you know, all, all factors. This is going to be a really tough place to succeed for a good three to four years. And, yeah. that, and that's that's the window for a head coach, really, when you get hired. Is that first three seasons? What are you doing? And if you're not, per, if you don't have any success or show any signs of improvement in that first three seasons, it's hard to imagine you stick around any longer. I agree. So this was episode number seventy-five from the Pickasod Podcast. We are not going to take in callers today because it is ten sixteen p.m. where we are at, 
Eastern time. And this was a long show, almost a three-hour show. We did an interview with uh, Will Hanley from Nets Daily, which is pretty cool. Um, we're going to cut up some audio from that because I know it was pretty laggy at, in certain parts. But, yeah, we appreciate you guys for watching. As always, if you guys want to review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, you can. We are going to read those on the podcast and put it up on our Instagram. And you guys can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Pickaside Podcast and on Twitter at Pickaside Pod. And like always, thank you guys for watching, and we'll see you next time.